0: got some very cool special guests including musical acts that we all love like karina reichman daniel donato jake brownstein from eggy rick and peter from goose and many more tune in for new episodes dropping on osiris media march 5th on the best show ever podcast
1: acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend
0: all right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit 1 million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top. of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts.
2: Today, I want to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called Twenty Seven Club, and it's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgrace Land and iHeartRadio's 2020 Best Music Podcast winner. 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27, and season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi died mysteriously at the age of 27, and he lived his life unlike any other. He was arguably the greatest rock and roll guitar player of all time, and he was a busy guy. Busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, busy stealing trucks with Neil Young, trying to get to Woodstock on time. Jimi got busy with himself and got himself kicked out of the army. He was fired by Little Richard Arrested by Seattle cops and Canadian Mounties Doused with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands And haunted by the ghost of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones All of these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club If you like Disgraceland, Jimi Hendrix, larger-than-life rock stars, or just plain old mystery and drama Then you're going to love The 27 Club Subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that music can accelerate child brain development and strengthen intellectual, emotional, and motor skills, as well as overall literacy? Bringing music into the classroom can help kids explore the mind body connection and become comfortable with self expression. Sadly, many children's music programs are lacking in the resources they need to let kids explore this creative space. That's why OSIRIS is happy to partner with the Mockingbird Foundation. Founded in 1996, the Mockingbird Foundation is a volunteer run nonprofit organization dedicated to improving access to music education for America's youth. Each year, the foundation awards grants to dozens of music education programs and funds those grants through a combination of fundraising, publishing, and the curation of Fish.net, one of the earliest internet fan communities. Mockingbird is entirely volunteer with no staff, no salaries, and no office. So every dollar really does make a difference in providing children's music programs with the staffing, instruments, and support they need. The foundation gets over... $150,000 each year in grants. To donate or to learn more, visit mbird.org. That's M-B-I-R-D dot So I feel like we need to do a shout out to the listener that directed us to 42186, also known as the Brent Freakout Show.
1: <laughs> like I I had never heard of this show before. Like, Were you familiar with this? I had not. No, I had to consult my deadhead experts on the side to figure out what was going on with this. Because basically... Why don't you explain it, Steve? Yeah. Like the listener pointed
2: it to us because we were talking about the eyes of the world in Dick's Picks Volume 3 being a little fast, you know we, I, we talked about how it seemed like they were coked up when they were playing it, and then this listener's like, "Oh, contraire if you want to hear a fast <laughs> like Eyes of the World mm-hmm. listen to this show and the Eyes of the World uh, for again, it's 421-86 420, it is berserk It is like just bananas. I don't and I I figured out too that this is just how the dead played Eyes of the World in the mid-80s, because I heard like some shows from 85 where they played it the same way. But it's like it's like triple or quadruple time.
1: Yeah, I thought for sure it was all sped up until Jerry started singing and he sounded like, you know, normal, <laughs> not like Chip Monkey. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't believe it. And I can't really tell who is like responsible for setting such a high pace. And then nobody seems to, uh, everybody seems to think it's a bad idea as they're playing it, but nobody wants to like slow it back down. <laughs> so it just kind of like falls down the stairs for about 10 minutes. It's, it's pretty amazing.
3: Right upside the lazy game.
2: It's like, it, it's like. yeah, Jerry sings it kind of normal. And then the rhythm section, it's like they smoked, like, PCP during the set break. <laughs> and that's how they're playing this. So th- they do that, and then they go into, like, a drum space jam that Brent stays out for. And then he plays this really emotionally ravaged version of a song called Maybe You Know, which was an 80s song. I don't think it was ever on a record. Yeah. And it wasn't played very often. I think this was the first time it had been played in three years. <laughs>
1: right. And he just kinda springs it on the drummers and sort of does like a Richie Tenenbaum uh meltdown oh, yeah. <laughs> on stage. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> about his uh divorce or separation or whatever was going on at the time. Yeah, there's like there's
2: like this part like where he just is like you know, like, screaming, like, maybe you know how I'm fucking feeling. <laughs> and he's just, like, screaming it in that, like, you know, very distinctive. Gravelly. Brett, Brett. Yeah. Husky voice. And uh, it's, like, terrible, but it's also very gripping. Like, I've listened <laughs> yeah. to this sequence three times. And... I'm I'm just, you know, enthralled by it. Even though I would never say that it's good, it's very compelling. And I, I feel like this is another example of the Grateful Dead, how, you know, we think that they're the greatest American rock band there ever was. But part of what makes them great is that even when they're bad... They're still really interesting, and to me, that's a great example. Right? You know, four twenty one eighty six, and we're uh, starting so to you, uh,
1: spiral down into darkness here. So that's a little <laughs> right. a, a glimpse of the future. That I think you know a path, the one end of the path that starts uh, with this show that we're talking about today.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a good sort of it's a good entree into the Brent era, which we're going to be entering. For the next couple of Dick's Picks. That's right. Which, by the way, this is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris Media. And today we're going to be talking about Dick's Picks Volume 5, which is December 26th, 1979, at the Oakland Auditorium. That's The beginning, or near the beginning of the Brent era. And the beginning of the Brent era for us.
1: So I'm Stephen Hayden. Right, and my name is Rob Mitchum, and I love The Grateful Dead.
2: We both love the Grateful Dead. You know, there sometimes is a question among our Twitter followers, if you hate the Grateful Dead, why do you do a podcast about them? Because apparently some people think that we hate the Grateful Dead. We actually love the Grateful Dead, but we don't love every single thing that they do. And sometimes you have to call out the things that maybe don't work or even the things that you love. Sometimes it's fun to make jokes about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like you know an old friend. You just gotta you gotta rib him every once in a while. It's, it's 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 all in good fun, right?
2: Yeah, I would just say that if anyone listening happens to be friends, like with Bob Weir or Phil Lesh, maybe don't play him an episode. You don't have to tell him about the show. They probably don't care what we have to say anyway. They don't, don't tell them hear that we call Phil a playing. cop
1: or a stepdad or <laughs> 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 that we made fun of Bob for uh, oh weather report suite. I don't know what else other Bob thinks right future episodes we'll have more making fun of bob for sure
2: but again all affectionately all affectionate and i will say too um um and this is also brent related i unironically like the bobby and the midnight's record at least the first one
1: <laughs> billy cobham playing drums come on man all right i i gotta give some, it more of a sp- shot some I, nice uh, groups in there i had my plate full with uh digging into heaven help the fool for this episode so I, I'll, I'll get to the midnights for for next week <laughs> that's all i could take from bobby solo
2: but before we get into this episode too i feel like we have to give a shout out to amar the dude who does our music i feel like every episode uh people go on twitter and they want to know like who does our music and we, we've said it many times that it's Amar Sastry genius of youtube videos breaking down fish music um but he's also a grateful dead fan and he composes uh the music in the show and he he plays that beautiful sort of eyes of the world esque music at the at the start of each episode uh so you definitely want to check out amar on twitter he does a lot of cool things uh but he is the one that does the music right so write that down
1: well on twitter he is brahman asking us man brahman noodles
2: ramen noodles check him out
1: look him up he did a beautiful transcription of a keith part that we shouted out in one previous episode he transcribed it for guitar it was great i like that alone was like justification for uh for us doing this podcast is putting that piece of music out into the world and so thank you omar for, for everything you've done
2: and how amazing is it to actually hear from somebody that knows something about music (laughs) <laughs> you know, having them talk about the Grateful Dead—it's like Amar should have his pod, own podcast. Right. You know, not uh, we don't—we don't know anything about music. We're, we're just talking here. We're just two music critics, uh, but Amar actually knows stuff about music and he can really break it down in a great way. So, we love having him in the 36 from the Vault family. So, shout out to Amar. Um, I'm excited about this episode because you know, the first four dicks picks uh, come from generally agreed upon great eras for the dead. You know, we've got obviously, uh, you know, our last episode was about maybe one of the most loved Grateful Dead shows of all time from 1970. We've, we've, we've gone to 1977. We've gone to 73. Um, now we're entering the late seventies and really this show, it feels spiritually eighties, you know, even though it's technically 1979. Um, it feels like we're entering the 80s. And and um, I really like Dick's Picks Volume 5. I feel like I probably like it more than you do. Although my sense is that you have come to appreciate this maybe a little bit more than you did going into it. Yeah,
1: well, I think... Although
2: I do... But...
1: Yeah, I was just... You know, if you've listened to the previous episodes, I've, I think I've been pretty upfront about the fact that my dead zone is pretty much just 68 to 78. Like... Left to my own devices, I'm gonna pick a show from that range and we'll dabble a little bit in the 80s and 90s based on you know some stuff that people recommend to me. But it's not like my go-to dead. Um, But you know, I'm excited to go into this with an open mind, I guess, and give you know the Brent era and later later eras more of a chance. And you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it my best shot to appreciate it and. uh, I guess enjoy it on its own terms, like not try to apply what I think of as the ideal Dead to these eras. Uh, I mean, you can't help but compare them a little bit, and it's especially like sort of uh whiplash to go from the 1970 shows of last episode and last volume to what I agree with you is basically the dawn of the 80s Dead. I think I mean the Brent era pretty much maps on to 80s Dead for me even though he had one half year of the 70s and about a half year of, the, of 1990 uh yeah when when brent when that gravelly brent voice and those wondrous brent keyboard tones start showing up uh you're you're in the 1980s on my dead calendar so yeah you know i am yeah. i was most excited i think to get into this one cuz it's like kind of the first one that I wasn't as familiar with and that I really wanted to to dig into and see what I enjoyed about it.
2: Yes, the transition from Dick's Picks Volume 4 to 5, it's like the jump cut in 2001, you know, where the monkey <laughs> is beating the bone and then he throws it up in the air and then we're <laughs> in outer space after that. That's pretty much what this was. Yeah. And I know it will get into this in the episode. I know you were talking about how it was jarring to go from The depths of 1970 to, you know, the end of 79. It's a pretty big jump. And of course, after this, we're going to be going into 1983 in Dick's Picks Volume 6, Mm -hmm. which is really 80s. Now we're – because I feel like in this episode, Brent is actually relatively restrained uh the, the dad has not achieved full brentness quite yet uh, in this show because he'd only been right. in the band for about eight months. And even in 83, they weren't achieving full brentness. Like to me, like full brentness is like feel like a stranger on without a net, you know, where he's doing – it's full on silky, silky, crazy nights. It's like the big synths coming out, you know, very jangly kind of, uh, you know uh, – i'll probably be seeking out a turn here it sounds like he's not playing a real piano it sounds like sort of like a keyboardy type piano to me that's
1: well he's got like a midi layered over the top sort of thing it's like piano with like midi strings like cued to play simultaneously or something like that i don't know it's it's pretty advanced technology yeah
2: that'll be fun to get into once we get Uh, into full brent era getting towards the end of the 80s but anyway um let's talk about this Dix picks release uh this came out uh it was in may of 1996
1: right so we're definitely in the quarterly schedule now i think this is just about three months after uh volume four came out um interesting release like i feel like you know i talked about my sort of dead preferred era and I feel like Dick kind of had similar boundaries to um, what, what eras of the dead he, he preferred. Like there, There's a bunch of sources that say he like, liked everything up through 77 pretty well. He liked a, a few shows in 78 here or there. And then after that, that was kind of when he stopped collecting tapes for himself um, before he was the official archivist and so i think his he felt like his knowledge was a little shallower of the 80s uh and also i think maybe he just wasn't really a brent guy either to be honest like i feel like based on his favorite years he's very much a keith guy uh so it, it's kind of interesting because he talks in interviews around the time that this volume came out he talks about how the fans were just like clamoring for a brent release and so he kind of like gave in to the popular opinion and decided to put out a couple Brent shows here in quick su- succession with volumes five and six. Um, but, you know, it it makes it kind of interesting because, you know, if he wasn't really an 80s dead guy, I think the, the, the choice of this show was probably pretty telling because I think he is kind of applying like a dick's. 70s dead preference to a show that is very much 80s and I think that pops up over the course of this show and it probably will in 83 as well where maybe this isn't the most representative show of like what a Brent show at the time would have been but it's the kind of Brent show that would appeal to somebody like Dick so that's kind of how I tried to approach it
2: yeah I, I mean I think and we'll talk about this in our next episode I think Dick's Picks Volume 6 is more of a odd choice because I think the consensus, especially on the first set of that show, like, is that it's not really an exceptional Grateful Dead show. I think that this show, as you said, it feels like the beginning of the 80s, but there's also enough of like the late 70s in this show where it's not as dramatic of a change. You know, it's... It, you can hear his voice, certainly his keyboard tones are, are prominent, and we'll talk about that uh, later in this episode, but you know, he's not singing lead on any songs, and even his backing vocals aren't as prominent as they will become even a couple of years after this. Um, you can definitely hear him uh, on this record, but um, again, get once you get into the like late 80s, uh, that very distinctive sort of Brent bark of a voice, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it comes through loud and clear. But you make a good point, too, about how at the time, uh, again, talking mid-90s, a lot of those dead fans looked at the Brent era almost as a classic type era, you know, that this was the Grateful Dead that they grew up going to see shows for, you know, they, they were this is a generation that was too young to have seen certainly pig pen and even like the glory years of keith um, and we have a bit of a distorted view here in 2020 where this music is so accessible we can pretty much hear good recordings of certainly of every important dead show but even obscure dead shows are very accessible for us so If you're getting into The Dead now, all these eras are sort of equally accessible. But back then, um, you know, this was only the fifth Dix Pick series. You know, there weren't a ton of archival releases yet. So I think the frame of reference that people had for The Grateful Dead was much different then than it is now. That I think for a lot of people, Brent was classic. (laughs) <laughs> grateful Dead era. They didn't really have as much as much points of comparison to the eras before him that we do now.
1: Right. I mean, I think, and obviously their popularity exploded over the course of the 80s. And, you know, people that saw the dead in the 70s are a little bit like all the people who say they were at Woodstock. Um, like, there's <laughs> for every 10 that say they were there, probably only one was really telling the truth. Uh, but definitely in the 80s, like, a lot of people... You know that are young enough to be on the internet and have these sorts of discussions probably saw them first during the brand era and you know i totally get that that's you know the era that they feel like is the, they feel some possessiveness over and that's to them is the grateful dead uh and yeah it's just it, it, you're right it's a lot different for for fans like us who like, you know, came in late after The Grateful Dead proper had sort of ended their run, or even fans that came in during, like, the Vince era, for instance. Uh, Yeah, it's... I can definitely see why some people would have, you know, warmer feelings about this than people who were sort of raised with The Grateful Dead as, like, a complete flat history that you can access any era of.
2: Yeah, it's funny in a weird way where if you're a younger uh dead fan you have you're into the older stuff more it's more likely that maybe you're going to care about that more than someone who is maybe in their 50s now that was in their 20s and 30s during this era you know like when this is when they were going to a lot of shows it's kind of an interesting thing because like for you and i you know we're both in our early well i'm in my early 40s how old are are you like late
1: 30s i'm exactly 40 i was born six months before today's show
2: Oh, is that right? Okay. So yeah. um so for for people like us, you know, like the Keith era is like most likely to be our shit, you know, because that's the Grateful Dead stuff that in a way that we grew up listening to because that's the stuff that you were recommended to hear when you first got into the Grateful Dead. In the eighties, I know for me was the last era that I really got into. I guess the eighties and nineties grouping those together. And it was almost this thing you had to get over because of some of the weird sonic choices that they were making at that time. It's not as easy to get into that as it is the 70s and 60s stuff, which which is just sort of straight ahead, uh, almost classic rock sounding stuff. You know, there's none of the weird sort of synths and MIDI and all all that kind of, and all the stadium rock pomp and circumstance that, that, that the dead took
1: on as the 80s progressed. Well, it absolutely probably has something to do with the fact that the dead, like, have been cool again for the last, I would say, five to ten years. It finally, like, became cool to like the Grateful Dead again, and you started hearing, like, new younger bands referencing them and name-dropping them and admitting that they were influenced by them, because they had access to sort of the early avant-garde-leaning dead, the sort of noisier dead or the more experimental dead, Um, whereas, like... More than ten years ago, like that, that balance was out of whack, and you probably, if you were of a certain age, the dead that you knew was Brent dead or you know post Brent dead, and that was a much more smoother commercial in a lot of ways uh, sound I think than you know some of the '60s and '70s dead that we have a lot more access to today. I have to say that for
2: me, there are some '80s years that are stranger. Than what they what they did in the late 60s. Because in a way, like the, the palette of the late 60s is uh, more amenable to me. It's more connected to other kinds of music that I grew up listening to. Yeah, you know, I can make I can draw a line between that Era of the Dead and a lot of indie rock stuff. But like the MIDI stuff that they were doing in the 80s is so weird and yeah, it's weird in sort of a questionable taste kind of way. That <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's actually more challenging to me than you know the the so called avant garde stuff that they were doing in the sixties. In sure. a weird way, that stuff is more avant garde to me. And uh, and we'll get into this in the episode, but it's it's part of what makes the eighties era so interesting uh, to me. And, and we'll explore that as we hit other Dick's picks from that era. I mean, again, I think this show in particular doesn't get as far out. Uh, as a lot of those certainly like mid to late 80s shows do. Um, This is, it feels like the beginning of the 80s, but it still is connected enough to the 70s where it's not as dramatic of a change. Um, I feel like, so we've already, we've been talking about Brent here exclusively already in this episode. I feel like he's a big part of the narrative of this Dix Picks. Why don't we just go into his background a little bit? Uh, Because, uh, He's not a guy that you would have expected necessarily to join a band like the Grateful Dead. If you just looked at his resume, if he was applying for this job and you looked at his CV, it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, at the top of your list maybe to hire this
1: guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he comes from, you know, his pre-dead music. He played with a couple different groups. One was called Batdorf and Rodney, which I think is just a great like mid '70s <laughs> terrible name. I mean, it's two dudes right. and their last names and. They can't help but they were named, but they. I mean, I guess they could have come up with something better. Just call it Batdorf. Just call it Bat Batdorf is actually kind of cool in a, like, so uncool it's cool way. But yeah, there was Batdorf and Rodney, and then he followed Batdorf over to a band called Silver, which is also just like a classic, like, mid-70s rock band name where they're just like, you know... What's like a really like common object we can name our band for? (laughs) Like we're all out of states. Let's just go with like some elements. What what are the what are the classy elements for our soft rock band? How about how about silver? Silver sounds good, and silver sounds very silvery. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to their one album, but it is.
2: Oh yeah, it is
1: some smooth rock. Like it is like some like uh almost bread i would say another band right. another common object band uh just like very gauzy very soft rock um,
2: well and they were and they were an la band and they were very la sounding you know you know essentially a yacht rock band and yeah. And their big hit was it "Wham Bam Shamalam or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, which sounds like a way more rockin' song than it actually is. <laughs> and it's on.
2: And I know that song actually made it on a Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. Oh, it so is okay. Yeah, it had, so it had some prominence. And and I, Midler didn't write that song, so I don't know if he made if his estate like. Made any residuals from the Guardians of the Galaxy con- uh, soundtrack after <laughs> yeah. the fact, but whoever wrote that song, uh you know, made some money. But then, yeah, Brent ended up entering the dead world through Bob Weir's solo band around the time of his 78th solo record, "Heaven Help the Fool," which yeah. I got to say, I think Bob is more self-aware than he gets credit for. That he would name sure. his solo record "Heaven Help the Fool." <laughs> um, yeah, that's true i think i think he is but and and that is i think a full-on yacht rock record too oh absolutely I mean, that's a very I mean, smooth it's, record
1: it's got members of toto on it so i think that's <laughs> I, I forget what the yacht rock guys like said what their full criteria was but usually if steve Picaro was on your album it, it qualified as yacht rock so we'll have to get a <laughs> an exact ruling from them but yeah i think any also elton john's band is on a couple of the cuts there he covers a you know a Marvin Gaye song like it's like everything you want from yacht rock the cover is very yacht rocky he's looking you know full on glam fashion model bob with like sort of a jackson brown pout going on right. and uh yeah he's it's it's very of its era, I will say, and it's it's actually kind of an interesting album because like the way it came together. We talked a lot a couple episodes ago about the recording of Terrapin Station and how they used uh, Fleetwood Mac's producer Keith Olsen, uh, and the band really did not seem happy with that album at all. Partially because Keith Olsen made them practice, which they hated doing, uh, but also because he layered a bunch of crap on all their songs and you know just kind of made it a very glossy radio friendly product. Uh, so they they finished recording. That they go out on the road, they have this great Early 77 run Uh, Then Mickey Hart gets in his car accident And so they have to cancel all their summer tour dates For 77 And Bob decides to go back into the studio And who does he pick to produce it? He picks Keith Olsen, who puts all sorts of crazy Crap and gloss on all the songs And tries to make a radio friendly hit Which, you know, it didn't work out Like maybe that's best for the dead That Bob didn't have a You know, thriving solo career in the middle there As like a radio crooner um, but it's, you know, it's a weird sort of artifact because it's not like Ace where every song on Ace became a dead standard. Uh, like the only song that ever really got sort of somewhat regular play was the title track and they only played an instrumental version, uh, at some of the like acoustic 1980 shows, heaven help the fool. And the acoustic versions are really nice. Actually, those instrumental versions are, are nice if you've ever heard that. Uh, but on the record, it's like, man, they, they're throwing everything at the wall there's horns and strings and backing vocalists and it's i, I kind
2: it. of dig it i mean like i have uh, a serious weakness for for yacht rock yeah you know, and, and and like soft rock from from los angeles in the 70s it's the music that i remember hearing uh when i was three years old like basically the, the earliest musical memories i have are of that kind of music so um I, I have a soft spot for it. And it'll, and I like that sound more for Bob on his own than I do for the Grateful Dead. Like, I, I actually think that kind of works for him as this, you know, I can imagine Bob being a young dude hanging out in discos trying to pick up on girls and doing whatever it took in that era to do it. Uh, you know, it's like that line in Jackie Brown where Robert De Niro talks about how he used to hang out in discos to meet women. You know, because like, that's just something you did at that moment in time. I could see Bob doing that. Uh, sure. So I, I think that vibe works for him, even though that record, there's some terrible songs on it. Yeah. And it doesn't really yeah. work overall, but there's some moments on it I like. And by the way, you can't find that on Spotify or iTunes, and that's probably not a coincidence that you can't find it there, but you can find it on YouTube. Uh, yeah. So, so if you're dying to, to stream that. So, so Brent is playing in uh, Bob's solo band. And in the fall of 78, it's getting to the point where, in the dead, where Keith is pretty zonked out on drugs. And from the from the things you read of that era, he's not even really playing on stage. I, I've read things like where he was maybe playing with one hand at shows, you know, basically wow. nodding off. You know, like he was playing really... with one
1: hand, and he was flipping off Donna with the other. It sounds right, like they right. were having some very, very public uh, marital issues at the time. Which the dead, being like classic uh, conflict avoiders, I'm sure it just drove them nuts. Like they did not want to deal with that drama.
2: Well, the thing too that you read about in that era, and you know, I was reading the Blair Jackson David Gans book before this episode, which I cite that book all the time. By the way, this is like. One of the ur texts for me in terms of Grateful Dead history, so uh, I would recommend checking that out. But the things that the that the members of the Dead were talking about a lot at that time, they, they used the word color. You know, they wanted mm-hmm. more color in the sound, and it was at a point in the late seventies where Keith really wasn't bringing anything to the table. He was strictly a piano player, and the piano riffs that he was playing he was essentially just doubling whatever jerry was doing by the end of the 70s and they were looking for someone who would play organ and would play synthesizers and and would basically add another dynamic element uh to the sound where it wouldn't just be jerry essentially just soloing over the band and that being the main element uh the main sonic element on stage uh and Brent was that kind of player, and he was also a much more aggressive player, a much, much busier player uh, than, than Keith was. So, uh, you know, he starts to enter the dead camp toward the end of 78, and I know in David Brown's book, he writes about how Brent was invited to the last show of 78, the closing of Winterland show, and he he was told at that show that, that Keith was exiting the band i don't know if keith actually knew that he was exiting the band at that point (laughs) but they
1: donna says they didn't donna says they didn't know yeah until like right before they got kicked out so
2: they were scheming behind the god shows back to get them out of the band and of course by the uh you know winter and early spring of 79 uh brent was in the band
1: yep yeah i mean it's like they there's kind of like the kind of cool origin story of so he, Brent joined Bob's band. He's not on Heaven Help the Fool, but he was in the sort of touring band for that album when the Bob Ware band was touring around a little bit between the sort of between Kingfish and Bobby and the Midnight's phases. Uh, and there was this weird little mini tour in October 78 where the Bob Ware band and the Jerry Garcia band actually shared a few bills. And by all accounts, that's when Jerry first saw Brent's and he said something like hey this guy might work and i think what appealed to jerry was that in brent you could get kind of both keith and donna in one because brent was not only a keyboardist that would play a lot more different types of keyboards than keith would uh but he could also sing the high harmony parts that you know, it used to be Phil's and then Donna took over and then they wrote a bunch of songs with Donna singing the high harmonies. So here was a guy that could do both. I mean, I'm sure it appealed to them that they only had to employ one person instead of two. Money was always tight with the dead. Uh, but yeah, he just, it. it the one thing you can really tell. One thing that Brent really has going for him is that Jerry seemed to really like him a lot and he brought good things out of jerry and there's all sorts of videos and gifs you can find of jerry looking at brent with just like these like lovey-dovey adoring eyes <laughs> it's like a little man crush between jerry and brent on stage uh and you know if nothing else brent's like i think maybe kept jerry going through uh you know by all accounts a pretty rough decade for jerry garcia so he's got that
2: well when i think too the, 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 the Whatever you want to say about Brent, he was very much a man of his time. Mm -hmm. And he was a man to help usher the dead into a much different era than they were in the 70s. You know, one of the most fascinating things about the dead to me is how they were able to change with the times in their own incremental ways uh, while also staying the same. But I think with the addition of Brent, what's interesting to me, and we've talked about this a little bit. There's a little bit of, like, a Doobie Brothers influence, I think, Mm -hmm. with bringing in someone like Brent. Absolutely. Uh, You know, the Doobie Brothers were another band uh, that were from uh, the Bay Area, Uh, you know, started in the early 70s. They had two drummers, you know, they had some of the uh, accoutrement of being a jam band, although they're not really thought of being a jam band. They were kind of chugly in the the same way, like,
1: they had a, you know, they had a simple... Similar country rock feel to The Dead, I guess, I would say. And they made,
2: I would say they made more dynamic pop records, uh, Mm -hmm. where, you know, like like Long Chain Run and China Grove, they were working with Ted Templeman, a really famous rock producer, ended up producing a bunch of Van Halen records after he moved on from uh, the Doobie Brothers. Uh, But then in the late 70s, they made this very interesting transition from being this, dirty hippie rock and roll band in the early seventies to being a band that was almost like an offshoot of Steely Dan, you know, where Michael McDonald becomes the lead singer, uh, you know, uh, uh Jeff Skunk, Skunk Baxter. Baxter
1: shows up. Yeah. Gotta love <laughs> he Skunk. shows up
2: and their records take on, to me, they sound like the midpoint of the Grateful Dead and Steely Dan, like on records, like taking it to the streets and, and minute by minute. Um, in Michael McDonald they had, you know, this bearded guy with a soulful voice. Uh played that the organ play, and roads. Yeah. Played organ and Rhodes. It could it could play ballads, um, but still have some musical merit to it where it had pop appeal, but it it was still something that could appeal to the same kind of people that liked the Grateful Dead. Um it's also mm-hmm. worth noting that Silver uh uh Brent Midland's band like toured with the Doobie Brothers. Sure. Uh, in the, the mid 70s. So, that definitely would have been a good package. Um, so, I think in a way you could say that like Brent Midland was like the poor man's Michael McDonald that the Grateful Dead yeah. were able to, to bring into the band, which of course, you know, and this is maybe a whole other podcast, but just the fan fiction or, you know, the fantasy. Rock band aspect of imagining Michael McDonald joining the Grateful Dead. Like, what if Michael mm. McDonald had joined the Grateful Dead? And, Interesting.
0: Uh, and, uh, you, know, like, something going
3: <laughs> long ago.
2: you know, like, you know, like, what a fool believes, but then, like, with you a know, 10 goes minute or, solo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, like, cause, like, what a fool believes and, like, Shakedown <laughs> Street aren't dramatically different. They're sort of disco y no. rock songs. All, yeah but you know i don't know if the doobies ever did like a 15 minute version of what a fool believes uh that's an interesting thing but you know we will just put that on the shelf for now uh well and i mean
1: it's like I, i think it's more than just coincidence because like 78 is when minute by minute came out and that's the album that has what a fool believes on it right yeah so like the this whole like history we're talking about where the the dead are looking at keith and he's not really working out and they want to move in a different direction sort of stylistically with their keyboards you gotta think they were looking at the doobie brothers who i'm pretty sure were like significantly more successful they certainly sold sold more albums at the time than the dead did they had more pop success like we've been reading some like reviews of like the dead in 77 um Not just, like, the show we covered for episode three, but also some shows in the fall that were released, some shows in 78 that were released as Days Picks. And all the, like, contemporaneous reviews talk about how bands like Foreigner were, like, outdrawing the dead by, like... They they were drawing, like, double the crowds that the dead were at the time. So, like, I I think people forget, because the late 70s dead are, like, a pretty popular era today, that it's kind of the commercial, like nadir of the dead too like their albums weren't selling i think people weren't going to see them live as much so they definitely i think picking brents and kicking out keith was i think in a lot of ways a commercial decision as well i mean there's a, it was a mu- there were musical reasons for it but i think i very much think that like hey we need to get our own michael mcdonald is a thought that crossed their minds i wouldn't be surprised at all
2: well i think also the fact that he was younger m- made a difference in a way it's like when you look at tv shows like older tv shows when the show would get into its eighth or ninth season and you you bring the cute kid on you know or the or the or (laughs) the young neighbor yeah you need like a new cast member and he was younger he was closer in age to a lot of the fans in the band i think there was an aspect to him where if if you were just getting into the grateful dead it was easier to relate to brent than it was to Jerry or, or or even Bob, who you know, and Bob was still a pretty young man at that point. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there was that. Uh, you know, I read an interview with Brent Midland where he talked about how when he was playing with Bob Weir and there was a chance that he was going to join the Grateful Dead, that you know, he didn't know that the Dead were still together. You know, that he was a Dead fan who fell off in the early seventies. You know, and I think that's uh, yeah. that's probably true for a fair number of people. You know, where the dead were thought of maybe as strictly a six, a strictly sixties phenomenon, um, mm-hmm. and that they were fading a little bit. The, the, the other thing about about Brent, and I think this is a larger theme with the Grateful Dead, and I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll come back to it, is that I think you can make um, a connection between him and Bruce Hornsby and later John Mayer, uh, and, and look at them as three examples of people who come from a similar world, a soft rock world, essentially, that on paper wouldn't have necessarily looked to have been connected to the Grateful Dead uh, in a lot of ways. And, and even now, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, maybe people our age who got into the dead in this time where you can listen to everything and, and maybe only care about you know the so-called more experimental years or the glory years um and don't want to acknowledge that there is this soft rock side to the grateful dead that isn't as cool maybe but is just as essential and i think in terms of their popular following you know there isn't as many hang-ups about maybe as as there would be maybe with some of the more discerning grateful dead fans um i do think that with Brent and i think certainly with Hornsby there was a uh there was an element to their involvement in the grateful dead changing how they were perceived um i know in the case of hornsby for instance you know i i remember when bruce hornsby first came out i was like 8 years old when um mandolin rain was a hit and the way it is was a hit you know and bruce hornsby was not like a hip guy necessarily in the 80s i think he made great records i i love those early records um, sure. But it wasn't until he joined the dead in the early 90s that he became regarded, I think, more widely as this adventurous musician uh, that he's now mm-hmm. looked at um, as. And it, in a way, I think that is also happening with John Mayer. Maybe not with people like us who know him from, you know, his <laughs> solo records. Um, but I will say even for me, like him joining the dead made me go back and listen to those records in a way that I hadn't really listened to them when they first came out. I definitely think that, like, people who are getting into the dead right now and getting into them through Dead & Co., they don't have that baggage with John Mayer. To to them, like, he is to the dead maybe what Brent was to the dead in the late 70s, early 80s. It's like, well, this is the guy who's carrying the torch forward, and we just like this guy. We don't care that... Mm -hmm he recorded your body is a wonderland 20 years ago uh so it's just interesting like how musicians come into the dead with one kind of reputation and they exit or or they exist in the dead in a different kind of way because of that of that connotation like
1: the the dead are like credibility laundering them or exactly maybe maybe the opposite of laundering i don't know yeah it's credibility laundering and I think yeah. it with Brent. I see what you're doing though, Steve. I, I'm I'm trying to come in here with an open mind on Brent, and you're already trying to like just nudge me one step further to liken John Mayer. I'm just Feel saying like a, it's like like a like Brent is a gateway drug to uh, breaking down my John Mayer resistance. I'm I, just I, saying there's I'm a so, there's a keep soft this in rock, the back
2: of my mind. There's a soft rock continuum that exists in dead history that begins with right. Brent. I think Bruce is in the middle, and I think John is at the end, and maybe there'll be someone after that. Someone even softer than John Mayer that comes in. Uh, You know, uh, like like Shawn Mendes will be playing in Dead and Co and Co in 2050. You know, we'll just get softer and softer as the years go on.
1: Michael Buble. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
2: Uh, So, okay, so let's talk about... uh, Uh, let's get some context, I guess, for, for this show here.
1: Let's get into this show because it's, it's like a really it's a really interesting run historically for the dead uh, similar to the way that you know in the la- last episode we talked about this like iconic Fillmore East run at the dawn of the 70s uh, and all the sort of like narratives in the dead that sort of hit a crossroads right at this time Uh this run also seems like it was kind of the start of like what we came to know of is, I guess, modern Grateful Dead from you know the '80s on. Uh, so they were. It was a five-show run, New Year's Eve run. It was originally going to be four shows: uh, the twenty-eighth and the twenty or twenty-seventh, twenty-eighth, and then the thirtieth and the thirty-first. Uh, then they added this 26 show that is on Dix Picks 5. Uh, it was actually added as a benefit for an organization started by Wavy Gravy and Ram Das who just recently passed away. Uh, just a nonprofit organization to increase access to eye care. So a very like pretty like straight and narrow nonprofit for you know some guys from the psychedelic world. Um, but yeah, so they, they decided to do this, uh, this charity event to sort of kick off this holiday run uh but th- the interesting thing is that they were playing at not a new venue kind of a new venue for the dead uh and a venue that had existed for a while but was just starting to have rock shows again or music shows again uh and this was the oakland auditorium arena so i just
2: wanted before we talk about oakland auditorium arena, yeah uh, yeah I, I just, I, just to get back to this run for a second i just want to say that like i was sampling other shows from this run and i think that the, 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 there's a show they played on december 28th that um i didn't realize this when i was on ReListen, but i i learned later that it was actually this show was also released as road trips volume three <laughs> number one which yes. i don't understand that title by the way i <laughs> guess there's more than vo- yeah. more than one volume three but anyway i i prefer that show actually to this december 26th show mm-hmm. um there's like a really awesome sugary that begins the set. First set, it's like an 18-minute version. Um and then in the second set there's this really great progression uh that takes place where uh I'm just bringing up the show right now like in the at, the at the beginning of the second set they play Terrapin Station, the full version of it. They go into a like a really sinister sounding play in the band. And then they go into Drum Space where It's really like drums and space happening simultaneously. It's not like there's a drum solo and then there's there's a space section. It's all happening at once. Really evil sounding. Sounds awesome. And then they go into Uncle John's Band, which we're going to talk about that. They played Uncle John's Band at the 26th show, and it was a bust out at the 26th show. It was their first time playing it in a couple years. And then they brought it back uh, for this 28th show. Um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here because we're going to talk about the twenty-sixth show, but I, uh, just make a note that you, you're going to want to listen to the twenty-eighth as well. Yeah, I, and, and uh, curious to hear what other people think. I again, I think that show is superior to what was released on Dick's Picks Volume Five. Hey everyone, just taking a quick break from this episode of 36 from the Vault where we're celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead to tell you about another group of people who are celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead and that is the Skull and Roses Festival that's taking place in Ventura County in California uh, from April 2nd to the 5th. And it's basically just a bunch of musicians and bands playing Grateful Dead music. We talk about Grateful Dead music here on the podcast. But there's nothing better than actually being in a field or a desert or wherever you may be and listening to this music. And uh, there's some really cool groups playing there this year. you got Billy and the Kids. You have, ooh, Othiel and Friends. I, I'd actually like to see, see that. Oteil, of course, he's the bass player for Dead & Co. Played in the Allman Brothers for a long time. Hell of a musician. That'd be great to see. So go see the Skull & Roses Festival. That's again April 2nd to the 5th in Ventura County, California. So, yeah, so be sure to check that out. Sounds like a great time. Okay, now back to 36 from the Ball.
1: Yeah, I, I, I kind of dabbled. I didn't get to all five shows, but I jumped around a lot. And I mean, it seems like a very solid run uh, musically, just all around. And I feel like this is kind of like, you know, it's, it's the end of Brent's first year at the band, and he actually didn't, you know, start until spring. Uh, so, but I feel like it was april seventy nine yeah, it feels like he's really starting to settle in, and they are moving in some interesting directions with this new guy on board and getting comfortable with each other, and he doesn't feel like the new guy anymore and yeah, it's like it's a it's it's a big run for musical reasons and also for some like extracurricular reasons as well uh, right. uh, and one of those one of those is the venue, which would turn out to be sort of the the dead's home base for the first part of the 80s uh because the uh Winterland shut down at the end of 1978 you got that New Year's Eve dead show which closed down the Winterland uh so they With needed the Blues somewhere up.
2: right Blues exactly Brothers, yeah. I think open that show and brent was in the wings and they yes. were conspiring to get rid of keith so a lot of backstage <laughs> intrigue exactly a lot of backstabbing going
1: on uh <laughs> and they uh so they had to find somewhere else indoors to play uh in the bay area they were starting to play at the greek i think around this time too maybe a year or two later and that also became sort of a like northern california staple venue for them uh but they uh you know went to this other venue which of course bill graham owned the oakland the uh, oakland auditorium arena don't confuse it with the oakland coliseum arena which was nearby but a lot bigger it's more of a stadium they would eventually play there in the stadium dead days but this was just like a big indoor general admission room uh and they they played a couple shows there in august of 1979 it turns out they had actually played there in 67 and 71 one of those shows was a black panther party benefit which i find really interesting then like kind of makes sense for the dead like sort of running with all these countercultural circles at the time uh but yeah so they came back it sort of reopened uh, for shows in 1979 They played a couple shows in August Which went pretty well And then they played this big New Year's run At the end of 79 And this really seems like the show that like, The Deadheads started feeling As though this is the new Home for the Dead. This is the new winterland. And I guess this show is famous for having a lot of fans that traveled from the East Coast to go to at least a couple of these shows, uh, which hadn't really happened before. The Dead were still kind of like drawing bands from, fans from nearby, wherever they played. You didn't really have this like uh, sort of travel uh, aspect to following the Dead around the country yet until the 80s. Uh, it's also like interesting. It's known in sort of Dead lore as being the dawn of Shakedown Street like Shakedown Street being this outdoor open air market of like bootleg merchandise and food and various other more illegal products you can buy at the parking lot and it's it's it was really just sort of a practical matter because the winterland was just on like a a very you know dense urban part of San Francisco so there wasn't really a place for fans to congregate before the show but the oakland coliseum had this like nice grassy area outside the venue uh so people started hanging out you know earlier in the day before the show and started selling stuff to each other so you can pretty much trace the lot scene of the dead and you know by succession the lot scene of all the jam bands we have today back to this run of shows which seems to be the first time you really had significant vending outside of a dead concert
2: and I think you can hear that when you listen to this show that the crowd seems very like you could tell their tummies are full of grilled cheese sandwiches. You know, they're very satisfied watching this show. So, you know, I don't know. I I I I don't know if uh, the grilled cheese sandwiches were there from the beginning. I'd like to think that they were. So, I'm, I I'm just going to pretend <laughs> that there that, the, that the grilled cheese was flowing outside of Oakland Auditorium uh, before this gig.
1: Right. And they played. They ended up playing. Let's see, what did I have here? Fifty eight times. It, it, later, it was renamed to Henry J Kaiser Convention Center. That's like sort of the late eighties name for this same venue. Uh, and as the dead were wont to do, they just found a venue and they stuck with it and played it a ton. Uh, but it, eventually, they moved, you know, down the street or whatever to the the larger Oakland Coliseum and I think this venue was like condemned soon thereafter cuz it kind of sounds like again like sort of a dumpy place uh but yeah like the in 1979 it was like kind of a happening venue though and like the list of other acts that played there in 1979 really like puts in context you know kind of what an anomaly the dead were in the music industry at this time because this is like the height of New Wave crossing over to to mainstream audiences and this size of venue was perfect for all these up and coming New Wave bands so like the other groups that played there in 79 are like the Jay Giles band Roxy Music, The Jam Dwight Twilley, Blondie The Tubes, including Vince Welnick uh, Frampton played there AC/DC played there, REO Speedwagon played there, also kind of like in that like doobie soft rock zone. Uh the Ramones played there. Rainbow with Richie Blackmore played there. Bob Marley played there. So you know, it's Not a pretty bad. like it's a it's a, a a pretty hip venue at the time, I would say. And I think the dead kinda sticks out in that. Like there's nobody in that list that was even around in the late sixties really, right? Other than Marley, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean yeah they were definitely the uh you know the the old the old uh war horses at that time uh you know carrying on and waving the flag for the 60s and, and again you just get the sense maybe i think in terms of the mainstream culture yeah i'm sure they seemed like an anachronism at that time
1: yeah. little did they, they know an though,
2: that the dad would continue right? yeah. yeah absolutely uh, so let's look at the larger world as it existed uh during this week in late december uh 1979 as the 70s are coming to a close the number one song in America this week, Rupert Holmes' "Escape," <laughs> the Pina Colada song. You know, like I said, I I have a soft spot for this like yacht rock, soft rock cheese. So I don't hate this song. I don't I don't mind Rupert Holmes. Yeah, uh, you know, I feel like I hear this song on the radio, and uh, it just reminds me of being like you know three years old.
1: Yeah, it's like. You're a little older than me, so maybe you did grow up with the Pina Colada song uh, in your memory. But uh, a, there's a there's a website I found called Chart Playlist, chartplaylist.com, a little plug for them, where you can put in any dates and it'll make a Spotify playlist of the top 100 songs. Uh, from that date from the billboard chart and like i could not believe how like just top to bottom smooth the chart was (laughs) in late december 1979 like everything is like a smooth rock song or a smooth pop song uh it's it's yeah
2: i mean this was this was really like the peak of like corporate rock and uh i mean you know i mean whenever they do uh, histories of rock music you know they talk about punk being a reaction to what the music was like in the late 70s but this shows that even after punk this music continued to be hugely popular you know so you have rupert holmes you've got sticks babe yeah. which even for a stick song <laughs> that is like super soft uh you've got the the captain tenille casey and the sunshine band Super Tramps Take the Long Way Home, which um, that's from Breakfast in America. Yeah. I am a Super Tramp fan. Super Tramp, actually, I will say, I'm going to defend Super Tramp here for a little bit. I put them, you know, because they're considered. I think, you know, on the prog rock side, uh, the the popular kind of prog rock mm-hmm. side of, of of uh 70s music, but I I group them in with like the quirky pop bands of that time, like you know, like, like Sparks and Ten CC, yeah, bands like yeah. that. I think a lot of their records fit under that. And uh Breakfast in America, it's a really good record, and I like to Take the Long Way Home. Supertramp again being another band I re- I associate with being, you know, playing with Legos on carpeted floors well, yeah. and hearing Breakfast in America
1: My uh, so as I said I was born in July of 1979 And my mom has told me that While she was pregnant with me she just played Breakfast in America over and over and over again And I actually have their copy of it On the shelf over here So like in utero Don't you
2: look at my yeah,
1: girlfriend Exactly, Cause she's the only one I got My like prenatal Not music exposure was entirely That like high pitched super tramp Guy's voice and a lot of like good Chunky road song like tone which you know now is coming coming oh, yeah. back into fashion, thanks to our friend uh, Kevin Parker and Tame Impala. There's like four four oh, yeah. songs on that he, album that sound just like Supertramp.
2: He's uh, he's like a total Supertramp head, yeah. and unironically and unabashed. So so good for him. By the way, Roger Hodgson, I believe, was the person <laughs> okay. you were looking I'm for the, that dude's voice. <laughs> I don't know any. By the way, we I, I, yeah. we're, we're, uh, we're going to record a bonus episode where I just sing in the Supertramp voice the entire time. And I, I'll, I'll sing every Supertramp song I love. Um, the number one album in the country this week, The Long Run <laughs> by The Eagles. And like in our notes for this episode, Rob just wrote, barf.
1: <laughs> and Steve wrote, in Next all caps, intrigued nod.
2: <laughs> I, you know, look, uh, The Eagles to me, I've written, I've written a lot about The Eagles. To me, The Eagles fall into the same uh, lane as The Doors in that it's impossible for me to solely love the Eagles or solely hate them. Yeah. I I think that uh, they're very hateable in a lot of ways, but I think they also have about a dozen songs that are absolutely perfect, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of, sort of perfect in an annoying way. I mean, it's very mathematical and it's very cold blooded in terms of just writing songs that were designed to be played a million times on the radio. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they did it because they wanted to be super rich (laughs) <laughs> and it, yeah. they really are. I guess if you want to say the they are the antithesis they they represent something completely opposite than the Grateful Dead do in terms of rock and roll or California or you know really the change in rock music from the counterculture of the late sixties to this corporate culture that existed at the end of the seventies. Yeah, you know the Dead navigated their way through that in their own way, and the Eagles did it the complete opposite way the dead went in the opposite direction from that and the eagles bought into it and um as someone who loves rock history uh, it's hard for me to uh deny the eagles because i just think their story is so interesting and you know certainly their documentary is one of the great rock documentaries of all time uh in terms of just its depiction of asshole musicians <laughs> uh cutting the legs out from under each other uh in a very compelling way um i also yeah. have to bring up you know we talked we, we talked about the dead's image at this time um you know shout out to one of the genius assholes of the of the eagles don henley his song boys of summer one of the it, it, look if you hate don henley i kind of hate don henley but you got to give it up to boys of summer very quotable line out on the road today i saw a deadhead sticker on a cadillac great line about rock nostalgia you know you got to give it up to, to don for writing that but he used the he used the grateful dead as a metaphor for sort of the commodification of the counterculture as it entered the early 80s uh Although he could have said an Eagles sticker on a Cadillac, too. That might have been a better metaphor for that.
1: But. And that's not the one he co wrote with Hornsby, right? That's the other one.
2: No, uh, like Mike Campbell wrote the music for Boys of Summer, which oh, you no, could probably it. Sounds did. like I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like an early 80s Heartbreaker song. And the guitar yeah. solo at the end is very Mike Campbell. Uh, Hornsby co wrote the Steve, NBA you're going to and... make
1: me like Henley now, too? This is just like. You're breaking down all my walls. I'm here. telling you.
3: <laughs>
2: and uh, no Hornsby co-wrote the end of the innocence, uh, which oh, right. is which has which has a beautiful piano melody. Yeah, very hard. I have yeah. to say some some good Don Henley lyrics. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to the tweets about this, by the way, saying where, I, where where people said that I said that Don Henley is the greatest musician of all time yeah. and uh, better than the Grateful Dead. Uh, I, I'm sure I'll be quoted saying that. Um, so other big albums of this time, you have Donna Summer, you have Sticks again. I'm guessing that's the Paradise Theater album by Sticks. You, I don't know, know. you it know, know better be than
1: I. I'm, I'm a bad Chicagoan. Uh, <laughs> I don't know my Sticks uh, history. <laughs>
2: You have uh, Stevie Wonder's "Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants." Yeah, that's great. That is a weird bizarro album. records made by a superstar. Yeah, one of the great kind of bizarro records by a superstar musician
1: and like uh, all, of all time. You know, we're gonna talk about some synthesizer here soon, and uh, that's a great synthesizer record, actually. And oh, I mean, absolutely! It, it, it never. I don't think it ever really occurred to me how like strange it is that somebody asked Stevie Wonder to score a film like. I don't, maybe it's inappropriate to laugh at but like somebody literally had to sit there and describe to him what was happening and then right. <laughs> and then he wrote music to that dude's description like what a what a strange process like that's yeah music man it's great what a weird thing
2: <laughs> i'm sure that movie which no one remembers um was the greatest movie of all time in stevie's head you know (laughs) so you know it might have benefited him to be blind in that instance um you have in through the outdoor by led zeppelin coming out around this time uh led zeppelin of course that was their last record they were on their way out Mm -hmm. john bonham died the following september in 80 you have tusk by fleetwood mac one of the greatest albums of all time my, my, my favorite of this batch here i love tusk Oh yeah, and then you have "Dan the Torpedoes" by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, one of their mm-hmm. best records. Uh, so, yeah. a very rich time for rock, pop, R and B music. Um, this same month, in December of '79, one of the worst tragedies in rock history occurred. That's the uh the stampede in Cincinnati at a Who concert, where eleven people died. Um, we don't need to delve too deeply into that, but that is a truly horrific event, if, if you've read anything yeah. about that.
1: Have um, you been to that venue? No, I have not. Have you? I've seen fish there a few times, yeah. Uh, clearly, it is not general admission anymore, and wasn't after that incident, but yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. In the seventh wild. grade? It's...
2: I was just going to say, in the seventh grade, I did a report uh, on festival seating. And the mm. dangers of festival seating, yeah, because that was the culprit of like the stampede at that show. This idea that like people were waiting to get in and they didn't have assigned mm-hmm. seats, and yeah. uh, they weren't. I think there were only a couple doors open, so people were trying to push their way in, and uh, you, know, you know, eleven people got trampled <laughs> to death.
1: Didn't uh, the band start playing too, and that caused a big rush? I forget. I think, what it was.
2: I think it was a soundtrack that like, people heard oh, the soundtrack and they, yeah. and they thought the band was starting and. They thought they were missing the show, so that triggered Mm. that whole
1: thing. Um, Did you ever see the WKRP episode about that, by the way? There's like a very special WKRP episode that is set during that concert. That is a weird thing. I got to find that somewhere.
2: Well, I I, I think that after that tragedy happened, like the world was wondering, well, how is Johnny Fever going to address this? (laughs) And fortunately, Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap uh, stepped up. Uh, and uh, Les Nessman, uh, of course. I, and by the way, I'm busting out some KRP references here. I'm 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 pretty impressed. I have not seen that show in a very long time, but uh, yeah,
1: it's, I'm it's impressed. A good program. Uh,
2: yeah. The number one, the number one movie in America, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, came out earlier mm-hmm. that month, about three weeks before that. Um, you know, we've had some good discussions on Twitter about what kind of sci-fi Jerry was into. I think the consensus was that he was a like a hard sci-fi fan. So he might not right. have, like, really cared about Star Wars.
1: He well, must think, have... Oh, yeah, not Star Wars.
2: But he would have fucked with Star but Trek.
1: Yeah. yeah, probably. I was going to say, mean, the hard sci-fi people like Star Trek, right? I'm not a big right. Trekkie, so... I'm yeah. definitely a soft, hard sci-fi fan.
2: I like Star Trek. I watched The Next Generation when I was a kid. And I've yeah. seen most of the movies.
1: Um, I, I'm always, like, tempted to get into Star Trek, but I'm like how many nerdy obsessions can one man handle in one lifetime so i mean you're the
2: type of person too who's going to like start from the pilot and then like watch every single episode
1: absolutely yeah that's the only way i'll ever do it and you know Um, maybe someday i'll be sitting in a retirement home doing that but let's keep it to uh you know 10 different chronological projects at at a time well you know
2: we'll do a star trek uh, podcast after this we'll call it four seasons from the vault (laughs) and we'll do star trek uh, other big movies from December 1941. Steven Spielberg, uh, his mm-hmm. first big flop. Yeah, I've tried. I've Belush, tried to get right? it. Yeah, Belushi, Aykroyd, a lot of other people. I've tried to get into that movie, and I, I feel like it's unwatchable. I know those people that really love 1941, and I'm sure we'll hear from them on Twitter. I I, <laughs> I, 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 I look forward to 1941 the 1941 Twitter <laughs> defenders. You have uh, Kramer versus Kramer, which ended up winning uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture uh beating like some pretty incredible movies including apocalypse now which we'll be talking about later in this episode because there's a grateful Dead connection there uh the jerk came out being there uh and all that jazz and i'll say those last two movies about being there
1: uh, yeah being there you know we've been circling around the term without saying it this whole episode i feel like but very appropriate for the daddest rock episode we've done so far that the movie that inspired a Wilco album title was oh, it's true.
2: Right around this time. Hal Ashby, great movie. And I was going to say, All That Jazz, Bob Fosse. that's one of my favorite movies of all time. So go I see have All not That Jazz. I've seen it. I really
1: want to. Yeah.
2: Ah, see All That Jazz. Amazing
1: from what I've seen. Yeah. I got to get it.
2: Roy Scheider, Singing and Dancing. You know, you, you, yeah. it's, uh, you can't beat it. Uh, number one TV show, 60 Minutes and Three's Company. Great, yeah. great spectrum of entertainment right there. <laughs> Yep. All right, so let's get to the show. We've set the scene. We've gone to the venue. We, we, we've outlined pop culture. Uh, let's dive in to set one. And again, this is a complete show. This is the first complete show of that, we, that we've hit so far in Dick's Picks. So there'll be no griping about songs that were left off, even though mm-hmm. there's a couple songs that we probably would have been happy to leave off of this set. Although, again, yeah, I think i think this is pretty strong overall i i like both sets of, of this show yeah um so let's get into it So i feel Paul like that oh go
1: ahead i was just gonna say the switch now is that we'll gripe about songs that he left in <laughs> so i mean i think it's it's clear our stance is that full show should be released but right i don't know it, al- it's, it's there's kind there's of funny like that one... the first full show he did release is one that like i don't know it's maybe not the show you would think is just top to bottom good stuff you have to have in there right that's true although i think that this
2: show is probably a little bit more compact than some of the other shows that 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 were put out so maybe it's just easier to do, yeah this whole thing um and there's really there's really not much that i would cut out of this there you know we'll get into it there's some redundancies in this show that i think get pretty egregious once we get into the second set involving Mm -hmm. covers uh, there's, there's one particular artist who's covered three times in this show. And while wow, I love this artist, uh, it's a little much, it gets a little much toward the yeah. end of this show. Um, but uh, and, and we're reviving a complaint that's existed in previous episodes here. But I think this show, even partisans of this cover or this artist being covered, maybe you'll agree with this because it, it's pretty excessive in this show. But anyway, set one, it begins with cold rain and snow
1: right Um, and i should say it it begins the very first line of the show jerry flubs the lyrics (laughs) like he instead of i married me a wife she's been trouble all my life he says well she married me a wife i've been trouble all my life doesn't i don't it kind of works as a you know a flip flipped around like that but i don't think it was intentional and i i think that foreshadows that this is kind of a weirdly like flubby show even by dead standards like there's a lot of like people coming in too early on songs with vocals or lyric people forgetting lyrics uh a couple like sort of strange transitions between songs so i i, I mean i love it and i'm that's this is why Dick's Picks is great that they didn't like go back in the studio and fix Cherry's vocals at the top of this uh show or cut out the song because he got the, the words wrong but i i just kind of like that it's sort of like a nice thesis statement for this show that right from the top they already uh screw something up
2: yeah i have to admit i didn't notice the flubbed lyric i did notice that they're a little off when the song starts it sounds like mm. they're a little off beat and then they they, yeah. they, they kick back in um this song is interesting because, you know, Cold Rain and Snow, it's, a, um, it's an adaptation of an old folk song, a, a murder ballad that uh, derives from the early 20th century. And, of course, this song originally appeared on the first Grateful Dead record. And I was looking at the performance history of this song, and, you know, they've... Consistently perform this song like throughout their history, you know, going back to the late '60s. Although in my mind, for some reason, I associate it most with the '80s um, mm-hmm. because I feel like I feel like they would start shows fairly often with this song, or they would play it maybe in the second slot. Uh, right. Some foreshadowing here. They actually th- this song reappears. I know on uh, Dick's Picks Volume Twenty One, which is a show from 1985. And you know, for that reason alone, that I, that's not my that's not one of my favorite Dick's Picks, but I, I do have some affection for it just because 1985 is such a weird year for the Grateful Dead, mm-hmm. and it's 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 kind of bizarre that they have a Dix Picks from that year, uh, but they yeah. play Cold Rain and Snow uh, that year, and um, I like they it. actually I li-
1: like I, I like it in this both, slot. I think, um, it, I, I think it works. Yeah, both shows from volume four also opened with cold rain and snow oddly enough uh though cold rain and snow is not on volume four um and i think you know the dead were very literal in their setless choices sometimes like they always play one more saturday night on saturday night uh but i i'm pretty sure like you can reasonably surmise that anytime they open a show with cold rain and snow it's because there was either cold rain and or snow outside the venue before that show <laughs> and so i i i almost take it as like a uh you know a weather report not weather report sweet but a weather report from the dead that it was probably raining outside the show on this night <laughs> yeah we need someone out there listening to dig
2: up the weather reports for uh december 26 1979 and can you confirm that it was raining in the oakland area (laughs) that night yeah Uh, that's like
1: from five to seven that night yeah
2: i because i feel like that's a good theory i'm guessing you're probably right that it was cold and or rainy that night i'm sure it wasn't (laughs) snowing in oakland i'd be shocked if it was snowing in oakland but it's probably cold and or rainy that night but i like this as an opener um it's a good mid-tempo kind of rock song. I think it works mm-hmm. in the first slot. Now, this the second song, this is interesting because <laughs> you know I feel like we've made jokes about this, about how as the dead entered into the 80s, there became this formula to their set list where they would often, in like the second or third slot, play a very long, slow, blue song sung by Bobby. And it was usually C.C. <laughs> Ryder or Little Red Rooster. Uh, or Wang Dang Doodle, I know, <laughs> would come into play, like going into yep. the '90s, and, it, <laughs> th- th- and and this song always seems just destined to be a bathroom break song for us. I will say that I did not bathroom break CC Rider on on this album uh, because yeah. this is our first CC Rider of the Dick's Picks run. Um, and I was like, I'm not sick of this song yet. And I, I'm going to sit through CC writer. This is actually right. the, only the second time they ever played this song at this show. So it was fresh right. for the dead. I think it's a pretty good version of it. I don't know. I didn't, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, turning in my seat or anything. I wasn't fidgeting excessively uh, during this. I, I enjoyed it. I feel like we're going to get into shows where they, you know, a couple dick's picks down the line where they're playing CC Rider. I'm not going to make it. But I think for this show, I, I, I was able to make it. So I, I
1: listened yeah. to it and I thought it was fine. Well, I'm like committed to the bathroom break bit and like taking it as realistically as possible. And I don't think I would have to run to the bathroom on the second. Uh, song of the show though it depends how much like pre-partying i'd done on the very new grateful dead lot scene outside so yeah i'm not using my bathroom break here either i think like like you said there's like sort of a novelty here to hearing one of these bobby blue songs i saw one comment that said this was the best cc writer ever (laughs) which god bless that person for actually sitting down and thinking about like the relative quality of cc writers but i love you know, it it was I, fine yeah well the thing we've You'll discovered find a defender for anything right
2: i was gonna say like we've discovered that there are partisans for every single grateful dead song like we're gonna get to a point where they're gonna drop in a keep your day job into a set and we're gonna make hmm, fun of yeah. that and there's gonna be people on twitter <laughs> It's like, how can you be a real dead fan and not, like, keep your day job? You know, <laughs> this is outrageous. Uh, and I'm sure there's people like that who are like, don't you like the blues, man? Don't you yeah. like the blues, man? How can you not <laughs> like C.C. Rider?" You know, I'm going to say, hey, right now, I enjoyed the C.C. C. Rider, So I'm with you yeah. as of now. Later on, might not be with you, but right now we're with you. Um, we'll take it. <laughs> the, the third song of set one dire wolf um and this is where we're gonna start talking about uh brent's tone um <laughs> in this show um because i don't know man it's weird he, you did some research into this because i was like oh, i wish he was playing like a fender Rhodes or like something kind of like very late 70s sounding and, it, yeah. and he and he is playing a fender Rhodes, but it's like weirdly customized
1: right my like You know, knowledge of gear is pretty poor, and particularly keyboard gear, which, you know, I have basically no frame of reference for, but it sounds like he modified it to have a lot more attack so that it sounds just like very metallic and sharp, which, you know, Fender Rhodes, I usually think of as the opposite, right? It's kind of like this pillowy, like, misty sound uh, that has a lot of reverb on it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Whereas Brent's like the opposite. It's like getting, like, stabbed with icicles. It it's sounds like it's, so, so. It sharp. sounds like
2: it sounds like a ringtone. It sounds like when he's playing keyboard yeah. solos on a lot of these songs, it sounds like oh, a person from the future is at this dead show and their phone keeps <laughs> ringing, and it's ringing for a long time. And yeah, I just I, I just do this thing when I hear him play, where I'm like, oh, if if it didn't have this weird metallic tone, this would sound really good because his playing, I think, is yeah. really good on this song, but the tone is so weird and and I'll say that and maybe this was a Stockholm Syndrome thing with this show that I came around to appreciating it by the end or at least not minding it um right but it's a pretty big negative to this show like just this that metallic sound coming out of his keyboard
1: yeah and i think so i i did a little digging into like listening to some of the odds from this run as well because uh, obviously this is a soundboard it's a two-track soundboard recording like all the dicks picks and what jumped out to me and i know you don't you you listened as well and don't agree with this as much but when i listened to an audience recording of these shows it sounded a lot better to me and i wonder if there's something about how you mix this particular instrument live uh, where on the soundboard it sounds really sharp and really metallic, but when you 're in a room where you have sort of the natural echo of the venue, it actually does kind of get that classic reverby fender Rhodes sound and so I wonder if like this might be a case where the audience recordings do a better job of giving you a feel for what this show felt like in the room and what Brent was going for with his tone because obviously like the the Nobody was hearing the soundboard except for Dan Healy, the sound guy. Uh so and he was mixing it to sound good in the room, not to sound good on a CD, you know, twenty some years later. So I I think like my like sort of defense of Brent's tone on this album, and I have the same issues with you, especially like I said, jumping from seventy to seventy-nine, especially on a song like Dire Wolf, which is like beautiful and sparse and haunting on Dix Fix Four, and is just like a, a, a totally different animal on Dix picks five uh my my sort of like i'll i'll hand it to brent that maybe he was like going for something that you can't really appreciate in this context
0: i can
2: buy that i you know i went and listened to the audience recording on your recommendation because you were saying that you felt like it sounded a lot different i didn't feel like it was that different to me it was maybe a little warmer than the dicks picks version but it was still pretty metallic sounding i have to say that that december 28th show that i've been talking up i feel like that tone is less prominent and it's because he's playing a little bit more organ on that record mm-hmm. uh yeah. than the than, than the keys uh so it, it's not as much of an issue i feel like on that record i feel like he's just playing a lot of like a you know of that fender Rhodes on this record and he's actually playing like quite a few solos on a lot of these songs um and again he's not subtle and you know i've said this in other episodes that i'm a big proponent of the keyboardists in the grateful dead having a more prominent role like as much as i love keith my complaint against keith has always been that you can't hear him on a lot of those recordings and and he's also just not a very assertive player that was just his personality he was much more of a hippie jazz cat dude that wanted to melt into the background maybe <laughs> on a lot of those recordings. And, and you know, Brent, on the other hand, was much more aggressive in, 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 in the style of his playing and also uh, just the tones that he would use. And, you know, I'm someone who is a Brent defender. I like Brent a lot. And I actually appreciate what he brought to the band as they went into the 80s. And he got even bigger and bolder with his tones you know when he was playing around with synthesizers and and, and doing all the midi stuff um mm-hmm. even, even though i think at that time you know you can go back to those shows and and question his taste at times and 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 feel like oh i wish this is maybe a little bit too much like i wish you had pulled back right. maybe a little bit on some of this stuff um i don't know it's uh it's an, it's a it's a it's a very odd thing I think to listen to this to this show and and hear that metallic stuff and and it, it just it just to know that he modified a very warm sounding instrument and just took the warmth out of it for whatever reason and I don't <laughs> yeah. know why he did it it's an interesting choice though yeah. and like I said like even though it's not my favorite thing I I, I spent enough time with this with this uh, with with this show to. Maybe not love it, but to uh, appreciate it a bit more than I did at the beginning uh, mm-hmm. of listening to it. Um, so these next well, bunch of shows,
1: just real quick, I think you you sort of hit the nerve of like why I truly am not a big fan of eighties dead versus seventies dead. Is it, it it has more to do with the approach to keyboards than the tone of the keyboards, even where I do feel like the Keith approach works a lot better where he's a little more subtle he's adding sort of background color he's not really engaging in conversation with the others quite as much because i think the dead already have a very busy sound (laughs) even without a keyboardist like stepping up and equally sort of taking a lot of solos or taking a lot of like very prominent fills and things like that uh so that's like kind of the hardest thing for me to get over. I can get past the tone, but I do feel like there's just a lot going on. And it, like you say, I think it probably like gets more and more dense as the 80s go on. So here I could tolerate a little more. But the fact that Brent is also kind of a soloist rather than a background player uh when jerry and bob and phil are also all going nuts and the drummers are going nuts like it's it's just a lot going on for me like i feel like somebody needs to like take a step back in the band or else like it just becomes you know a little too competitive uh to my ears well i think
2: i think the person who took a step back was bob you know and and the Mm -hmm. things that i've read they've talked about how bob i know one person was they felt that Bob almost dumbed down his style a little bit because yeah. he, had, he had to step back because Brent was so prominent. And like I said, I think there were risks that, that Brent took that were not wholly successful in the 80s. Although I do think that he is successful like a fair amount of the time with that stuff. And the defense I would make of that is... Brent is what makes 80s dead distinctive rather than just a reiteration of the 70s you know, if they have mm-hmm. just if they had just hired another Keith guy i I don't know if um I I don't know if they would have been successful in the 80s i I also don't know if if 80s dead would be as sort of unique as it is in dead history um mm-hmm. no, no matter what you think about it um you can't really accuse them of just trying to sound like they used to sound in the 70s you know they they were embracing the technology of the time um again in ways that sometimes uh were not in the best of taste (laughs) but i think other times are genuinely interesting and and make it fun to revisit a lot of those shows uh so yeah uh, so even when I don't fully support what Brent is doing, I, I support the, the idea of what he's doing. And, and I appreciate what he brings to the band uh, in that mm-hmm. respect. Um, so the next several songs on, in set one, you know, we can break these down individually if you, if you feel like you, you need to. But I feel like me and my uncle into Big River, Brown Eyed Women, and New Minglewood Blues, I think they're all fine and I enjoy them but it seems like a very 70s first set boilerplate type progression where I don't know if there's anything hugely distinctive about what they're doing with these songs uh on on this album I don't know if yeah. you disagree or not but like I don't have anything I don't have a ton to add uh, about what they're doing <laughs> I mean I think I think yeah. it's fine I think it's good um but you know it, it, it it's nothing you haven't heard before I guess on other live records
1: yeah the only thing i really have to say about these is that like yeah i agree that it's like something you'd probably find in a lot of 70s shows but i also think it's kind of a set a little mini set of songs that adapts pretty well to what they're trying to do now and like i can hear them sort of morphing into an 80s version without a whole lot of growing pains dire wolf was like tough for me to swallow but brown-eyed women especially i think becomes just like a pretty nice, like smooth dead song. Like it kind of has like an easy glide that works really well uh, with that sort of approach. And you know, me and my uncle in Big River, they're they're still being discoed up a little bit by the drummers. Uh you can still hear a little bit of like that 77, we're gonna disco up the country songs approach. But it's not quite as strong as it used to be. And it's you know it's it's pretty nice. Minglewood you know has been around since the 60s and like it'll continue to be around through all the 80s and it's all right like you know it's i i kind of like that as a bob song and uh you get brents on the organ i think for the first time in this show uh and you know one thing everybody can agree on is that brents was the best organ player the dead ever had and i'm kind of looking forward to hearing some more examples of that so that's kind (laughs) of what jumped out Just to piggyback on a a
2: point you just made, um, which I agree with, I think that uh, you you, you can listen to this part of the set and you can hear the the evolution of the dead into more or less a more straightforward rock band, you know, where Mm -hmm. they could play these songs... You know, they weren't playing arenas or they weren't playing stadiums yet, I should say. But there is a stadium rock feel to what they're doing here where it's a little more streamlined. It's not as eccentric maybe as what they were doing earlier in the decade. You know, this is the dead proving that, hey, we can be just a, de- a dependable rock band that if you love brown-eyed women, we're going to play brown-eyed women in a fairly straightforward way and we're going to please the fans, you know. By playing this. Uh, so, it's a, so it's so it's very effective in that way. You know, not hugely interesting, but like satisfying in its own way, I think. Um, this leads to Friend of the Devil uh, here. And it's interesting. I don't know how much research you did into this. Yeah, because they're doing the slow version uh, right. on this record. Which became the way that they would play it into the 80s. I don't know if they did any fast friend of the devils in the 80s i feel like most of the live versions i've heard are all this slow version
1: yeah it's um, slow from here on out yeah
2: and obviously on the record it's this jaunty folk song and, right. and and that that that's how it had its original life and and here it's more of like a slow more dirge like tune
1: yeah and i it, it's it's kind of interesting how my feelings have evolved on this over the years where i used to find this just like totally dull compared to the original and I, I think the studio friend of the devil is like a classic dead song right and i think it's even it, it's it, it didn't it make it the skeletons from the closet like it's like oh yeah know, officially our greatest hits of the dead and it does a lot of that sort of early 70s dead country rock country folk folk rock thing very well so it it was always an adjustment to me when i got a tape that had the slow version and slow dead tended to irritate me as a younger man and still does to some extent but you know i actually found myself really appreciating this version then it's kind of like the exception to this complaint i had just a few minutes ago about like brent adding yet another sort of busy element to the dead sound i feel like the three of them jerry bob and brent are having a really interesting three-way conversation through this song, and they kind of each have their own little spotlight segment in the middle. Bob even has like a little solo uh, before Jerry takes a solo and Brent takes a solo, and even though it is this like sharp Fender tone, I I, kind of like, I I can see what they were going for here, and I liked that uh, it, it seemed like all three of them seemed invigorated by the fact that they had this new voice to play off of. Uh, in even like a sort of slower ballad like this.
2: I like the dirge version. I I think that the dead were leaning into their strengths at this time, that if they had played this in the jaunty style, they wouldn't have been able to play it jauntily. You know, they weren't that band anymore. They they were older. Uh, And in the same way that bands, as they get older, they pitch the vocals down. So they're not, you know, singing as high as they used to. Because if you, if you strain to do that as an older musician, you just end up looking foolish. And uh, so I think for this song, it it just teases out maybe more of the menace of the song uh, when they play it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, or the sadness of the it. on the record, it's more... The sadness, yeah, exactly. And how, uh, you know, because like on the record, it's more of like a, an ironic contrast between the music and the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Here, it's it, it's more of a straight line. I will say, too, you know, you were talking about sort of the instrumental conversation going on between uh, Jerry, uh, Bob, and, and Brent. I think, too, this is a good example of what Brent brought vocally to the band. Yeah. You know, as much as we love Donna, we're Donna Defenders on here, um, there was something about those combination of voices that I think worked really well. You know, he he obviously blended well with those guys. It's interesting, too, because, like, as you get into the 80s, um, Brent and Phil ended up being a vocal combination on a bunch of songs, and brent carrying phil's weird voice forward (laughs) you know on things like you know give me some lovin and like some of the rock covers that they were doing at that time um you know so as weird as it is sometimes to hear brent singing solo yeah we're not getting any of that in this show because i mean i like brent's voice but there's an element to his voice where it's (laughs) this is going to sound worse than i mean it to sound but i mean there's an element to his voice that it, it, it kind of sounds like a guy trying to sing soulfully who can't really sing, you know, like there's something kind of put upon his voice. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of, um, of Tim Robinson uh, from I Think You Should Leave. There's this sketch from his pre-show, the show he did before that, it's a show called Characters where he's singing a song to his daughter and he's affecting this sort of like Bob Seeger voice. Mm-hmm. And it's like he sounds like he sounds like Brent when he <laughs> sings that way, like hey, yeah, I love you so much, like that. You know, like that's how Brent sings, yeah. like on his solo songs. And again, like I kind of like that. Like I dig what he's doing, but um, it's less affected when he's singing backing vocals for for Jerry and Bob. Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like. It, it's a little more I, I i tend to think he's better as a backing vocalist than as a solo vocalist. right but and i think uh, like well it really comes through well on that song
1: to the point of like these shows being where brent was really settling into the dead i think the fact that they brought back uncle john's band for the show in this run and they also brought back broke down palace i mean those are two songs that you need like very tight three-part harmonies on and that was probably why they right. sat on the shelf for a while during sort of like the decline of keith and donna and all that uh that's where you can really feel brent becoming part of the dead i think and friend of the devil applies to where yeah he's hitting that high part really nice he's doing like the donna thing but in a more masculine way of course uh might like funny story about listening to Brent's like I I listened to this Era of the Dead so infrequently that I had kind of forgotten when Brent's takes over and I was listening to I think a Summer 79 show and I texted my friend and I was like Man, I don't know, but Donna sounds really weird on this show. Like she has a cold or something like that. <laughs> and he wrote back like, No, that's that's Brent. <laughs> that's not Donna with a cold. <laughs> that's just Brent Midland. So but yeah, I mean I think I think this is like uh, uh you know, yeah, these there's a lot of songs on this set that are very much making a case for Brent, uh, you know, being a part of the dead in like a pretty integral way pretty fast.
2: Exactly. So we after that we go into Looks Like Rain bobby vamping as always on this song he hates rain
1: he hates that rain he hates the rain
2: and it's interesting too (laughs) that like when um that once brent came into the band like bobby was not necessarily like the hammiest singer in the dead anymore (laughs) that's true like you know because bobby definitely brings the ham sandwich on, on i mean song, i think he took know, that as a but... challenge
1: not a like he's like right, this guy's got ham i'm gonna do double <laughs> ham <laughs> and like and it just escalates it's like a a cold war of ham for the rest of the 80s <laughs> do you have anything substantial to say about looks like rain i mean i i, I really don't it's another like pretty good version where i feel like there's really nice jerry Brent counterpoint underneath all of bob's sort of hysterics at the end i mean i think it's kind of a sleepy pairing to throw in here like friend of right. the devil and looks like Ryan back to back uh you know one thing another thing about this show which is sort of indicating that we're in the modern era of the dead is that it's very much like alternating jerry and bob songs like I'm pretty sure it pretty much goes one to one, 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 one for Bob, one for Jerry, the whole show pretty much. And this is a case where that very strict flip flop structure can maybe kind of hurt a set flow to some extent. Where like Jerry calls for his ballad and then Bob calls for his ballad, and suddenly you right. have twenty minutes of slowness uh, in the, breaking up this first set. But other than that, I think it's a fine version, and it's a song that I like. I like Looks Like
2: and certainly that dynamic would not continue into the 80s, especially as Jerry's health would deteriorate. Yeah. Because you listen to those 80s shows, and Bob is really taking over at times. And, of course, Brent stepped up as well, playing his songs. And, you know, a Bob and Brent heavy set, as much as we might like those dudes, it's not really what you want from the Grateful Dead. You you want Jerry to have like a pretty prominent role, and uh, that's definitely a weakness of some of those... 80s years where where Jerry just was not capable of of being as prominent as he was in the 70s right. and, and earlier. Um, after that sleepy stretch, we go into a slam bang end to set one. You got a double shot of Alabama Getaway, which is a song that would appear on Go to Heaven uh, in 1980, uh, and th- that was a record that they. I think they were in the midst of recording at this time and they were almost done. Um, And then they go into Promised Land, Chuck Berry song right after that. And it's a good pairing because Alabama Getaway obviously is the Dead's rewrite of a Chuck Berry type song. Um, Mm -hmm. And I happen to like that song a lot. I I am a go to heaven defender. Uh, I think in terms of songs – that's like a pretty strong record. I mean, you've got Alabama Getaway, you've got Althea, you have uh, Lost Sailor and Saint Santa Circumstance on that record. Uh, certainly, yeah, a uh, lot of songs... Antwerp's
1: Placebo, The Plumber. Sorry. No, I just wanted to shout out Antwerp's Placebo, parentheses, The Plumber, as a classic (laughs) dead song like if we if we find a defender of antwerp's placebo then we've really succeeded in in enraging every corner of dead fandom like the people who are like how dare you dismiss 39 seconds of like drumming a true dead fan would not (laughs) not
2: knock that song rob I'm, i'm standing up for that right now a true deadhead would not knock that song um yeah But anyway, I think Go to Heaven has a lot of songs that, of course, ended up being warhorses for the dead as they moved into the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, Alabama Getaway, you know, maybe less so than certainly Althea and, uh, you know, Lost Sailor and Sane of Circumstance. I feel like they played that song quite a bit in the early 80s, maybe not so much later on. I I feel like that wasn't maybe as prominent in the late 80s. Um,
1: If I'm wrong about that, please point it out to me. At some point, Dylan was playing it more than the Dead was, right? That was like the that's Dylan's favorite Dead song to cover. No, that's West L.A. Fadeaway. I think. No, I think it's Alabama Getaway. Because I know, well, I know
2: Dylan played. I know Dylan played West L.A. Fadeaway too. I didn't know he played Hmm. Alabama Getaway.
1: I think so. Well, we'll have a poll when this episode. All right. Anyway, I I was going to say that uh, because I
2: know for sure he did. uh, I know for sure he covered West L.A. Fadeaway like in the early '90s. Mm. Um, which is a song I like more than Alabama Getaway. Although I like both Maybe. songs, but L- West yeah. LA Fadeaway is like I think one of the best eighties dead songs, in my opinion.
1: Right. I just wanted to uh, I want to insert here that like again I am committing to the bit of the bathroom break, and I think some people misunderstand the bathroom break as being the song songs that we don't like. It's actually more practical than that. It's the song during the show where you would have gone to the bathroom. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, not just the quality of the song, but also how much you imbibed before the show and placement of the song and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm going to choose Alabama Getaway as my bathroom break for this song. Uh, Ooh. I know it's going to be a controversial choice, but for one, you know, it's coming at the end of the first set when the bladder's getting a little full. more importantly number 2, I feel like Alabama getaway is a really great euphemism for taking your bathroom break when you know that set break is coming up soon. It's like, oh, they're going to play, they're going to Alabama getaway promised land. They they closed a lot of sets with this at the time. So you like nudge your friend and you're like, "Man, I got to pee. I'm going to do an Alabama getaway." So wait, so wait you're, so you're sitting through like, 20
2: work. minutes, you're going to sit through <laughs> 20 minutes of ballads and then like walk out during the fast song?
1: Yeah, like, yeah. I feel I'm, like I'm running into the I'm running to the bathroom to use it to beat the rush and then trying to get back to my seat before the end of the set. So I can see here, like the solo at the end of Alabama getaway and the drop in the promised land. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my call here. I'm emptying my bladder. I mean, at the time okay. it was a new song. So it's like, you know, when fish plays a new song, everybody runs to the bathroom like today. Uh, this is, I feel like would have been a pretty popular bathroom choice back I gotta in say, 1979. seventy nine. Like-
2: if you're going to go the euphemism route, I feel like looks like rain is like a better euphemism for <laughs> I got I got to take well, a leak.
1: Well, that but was anyway. like looks like rain uh in spe- like was what made me have to take a leak cuz I was thinking about all that water that Bob kept talking about. All that rain. Here comes the rain yeah. and I'm like, "Oh god, you're right, Bob. I got to yeah. go." <laughs> well, I I would I would
2: hang around if I could during Alabama getaway. And then Promised Land, I think this is um by far the best Chuck Berry cover that the dead do where it feels as much like a dead song as it does mm-hmm. a Chuck Berry song. Like, and I think that's always the sign of a good cover. Like where if a band plays a song enough, like, you know, it's a Chuck Berry song, but like the, the dead feel, it feels like the dead have some ownership of this song. And and I think the way Bob sings it is always really great. Like, you know, just the way he, he, he storms in and and just the placement of it in this set. I think it works really well. So, mm-hmm. uh, so this is a Chuck Berry cover that I like. However, there are going to be some more Chuck Berry covers <laughs> later, in this, uh, later in this show. I might feel differently about those. But this one, I really like this version. I think it totally works. So, mm-hmm. Rob, Rob, so Rob's taking a whiz during Alabama getaway, but he comes back. <laughs> in time for Promised Land, we rock out for Promised Land going into the second set. So that's yeah. the end of the first set. All right, so set two. As we alluded to earlier, begins with a bust out of Uncle John's band. First time that they played it since October of '77, so over two years, which is kind of weird. You would think, I mean, you, you made a good point earlier about how in this show they brought back a lot of the um, Working Man's Dead songs, where, you know, at that time they were really invested in vocal harmonies uh you know like songs like this song and 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 dire wolf i guess front of the devil is from american beauty but it's the same idea um and bringing brent i guess back in the band was that's probably a catalyst for them bringing back this song i would imagine
1: right and but though the vocals are back to sort of those folksy harmonies that they you know really nailed in the early 70s albums, like what's really jumps out about uncle john's band here is that it's not a folksy arrangement at all like the just the the and i'm not even just talking brent's tone at this point like we haven't really talked about it but jerry's tone is quite a bit different i think in this show than certainly than 1970 of course like he has a much more aggressive tone he's still using the mutron a lot he switches the mutron on for the jam here which like Mutron seems totally opposite to what you would normally do with uncle John's band, though. I, 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 think it, it works fine in the jam here. Uh, you know, Bob also has, is starting to get that sort of metallic rhythm guitar sound that he is stuck with to this day. And I, I found the whole thing very troubly. <laughs> I don't know if you had the same reaction. Like I, when I got to the second set, I had to go over to my stereo and crank down the treble a few notches because everything just seems very high end to me uh when they are when they're getting into a song like this i didn't get that vibe i really liked it a lot i i you know the
2: the thing that stood out uh, stood out about this to me is you know we've been talking about the transition into more of a straightforward rock band arena ready type grateful dead mm-hmm. and there's something so crowd pleasing about this song um Which, you know, I I was saying earlier that it was surprising that they hadn't played this for two years. I just think of this as, like, one of the sort of, uh, you know, entry-level Grateful Dead type songs. Like, this was a song that I knew before.
1: Yeah, you can hear it in the crowd, too. Like, people... It's always kind of hard to tell if, like, at this stage of the dead, if people were, like, keeping stats like they do today about, like, oh, it's been this many shows since they last played Uncle John's band. There was famously the, like, this many shows since the last Dark Star banner that people used to put up at the Winterland. But, uh, yeah, like, people, like, flip out as soon as they start playing this. Even on the soundboard, you can hear, like, a big audience reaction. I'm sure there were people that were aware that they hadn't played it in a long time. But I could also see...
2: It, getting that kind of reaction just because it's a really popular Grateful Dead song, and it, it, yeah. to me, it, you know, there were hardcore people that you know would have been really excited for them to play Dark Star at this time because they weren't playing a lot of Dark Stars. But like Dark Star, I don't know if that necessarily has the same crowd pleasing uh, qualities that a song like Uncle John's Band has, which is just such a feel good song where. If you were just sort of a basic Grateful Dead fan, like if you just owned a Greatest Hits <laughs> yeah. record, like this is a song you'd want to hear them play. And mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that they ended up playing it again, you know, a few nights later. Uh mm-hmm. Maybe for the same reason, you know, just knowing, okay, this is the kind of song that people are going to want to hear. And, you know, I don't necessarily get that sense from, you know, earlier Grateful Dead eras that they would have thought in those terms. But, you know, there's an element to that, to them starting off the set with a song like that that feels maybe more overtly crowd-pleasing than earlier Grateful Dead eras. That feels more akin to the 80s, you know, where where they were playing those kind of songs and they were also playing some like pretty straight down the line classic rock songs like covers in the 80s like playing mm-hmm. hey jude for instance or playing dear mr fantasy you know where you're just being like a the classic rock jukebox at that time but a lot of dylan yeah a lot, a lot of dylan you know songs that you know you could kind of roll your eyes at as being obvious but if you're playing big places like those songs work and they get the crowd involved mm-hmm. so it makes sense that they would do that um so yeah, I didn't really get the Trebley thing. I I, I, you know, I I think I listened to this show um, in the car and on headphones. And uh, yeah, the, the beginning of this set, um, you know, the, the progression that goes like th- like through the first like four tracks or so, I think is really great. Actually, really the first mm-hmm. six tracks, um, and, you know, like I guess the second disc if you have the cd uh, i think is is the strongest uh disc in the collection uh so it's a pretty mm-hmm. strong beginning uh so from there we go into estimated profit uh right. which to me is like a defining song of this era of the dead like late 70s dead uh mm-hmm. and then yeah. you know going into the next era this is one of my favorite versions um of uh, this song uh i remember when i first got this album uh when I first heard this album for the first time several years ago, um, this uh, this performance was one of the, was one of the standouts for me. Just how uh, it ends up going into the jam that comes next. Um, yeah, because this is a song that I think can be a little boring if like the Dead doesn't take it to an interesting place. Um, and it really, I think, it often comes down to Jerry's guitar solo. You know, like like mm-hmm. Jerry can really send this song into the stratosphere if he hits that solo nice and hard and and takes it to a to a like a cool place. And I think he does that in this version like in a in a pretty strong way. Um so yeah, I I'm, I'm very strongly pro estimated profit in this show.
1: Yeah, I mean if you include what's tracked out as jam 1 on the uh either the streaming version or on the discs. I mean, yeah, it's it's gotta be one of my favorite Estimates, too. I mean, it just gets so weird <laughs> once it gets into the right. jam part, and it's like so you, you start to hear I think it's pretty much the first time in the show you hear Brent getting on one of his synthesizers, because he uses it in the song itself, too. Like, it it comes in during the choruses. Uh, And then just as the jam unfurls, you're getting more and more Brent synth. And I really like these early synthesizer tones. I mean, he's using, again, I did my gear research, and he's using a Prophet 5 and a Minimoog synthesizer, which I know only sort of the very surface-level details of. I know they're both analog synthesizers, and because they're analog, they have that sort of classic synth sound sort of sci-fi movie sound uh versus sort of the more i guess synthetic like midi sounds that are going to happen later in the decade uh and i just really like how his synths sort of slowly take over this jam and drive it into some really strange places the the jam one part of, of of this segment uh, there's there's parts of it that, I mean, the drums are really good too. We haven't talked much about the drums in this show and, you know, they didn't really bother me that much. It's it's starting getting in it, to get into that two drummer dead stuff that I don't like as much, but there's parts in this that they sound like sort of, time travel edm style like complexities uh in this jam and when you get the synthesizers and you get jerry doing some like weird rhythm guitar stuff that he doesn't always do uh, like there were parts of this that i saw i thought sounded talking heads ish and there are very very few eras of the dead that i would describe as talking heads ish like those are two bands that i love that are complete opposite sides of the spectrum to me in terms of like the tightness of the groove versus like a loose groove and they they touch upon that here it's fleeting it's only for like a minute or so in that jam but it's like you close your eyes and you could be listening to stop making sense like it's that good
2: well it's interesting too because the the actual talking heads hadn't exactly hit upon that style yet, or they were in the process of exactly yeah. sounding like that, you know, like this was like, you know, this would have been, I guess, fear of music, uh, between fear of music and, and Remain in Light, you know, sure. so that, uh, that dynamic, stop making sense, you know, era band, I mean, that was really starting to come into play with the Remain in Light band. So, like, that's when they were starting to explore those kind of textures. So, yeah, it's kind of weird that, like, oh, the dead is, like, being prescient with what the yeah. talking heads were going to do the dead got rather there than, first
1: I, yeah
2: yeah yeah they weren't they weren't necessarily even influenced by them they were sort of maybe getting there in a different sort of way yeah listed as a separate jam on the on the record I, i'm not entirely sure if it should be separated from estimated profit i guess if you just want to hear that part it's convenient but right. it, to me it feels like a i don't know if it's entirely separate from yeah. estimated profit I,
1: I wish i knew more about this and definitely help us out in the on the tweets if uh, you know the story with this but dick if it was dick who was actually deciding where to cut the tracks and what to call a jam and what to call a song, he makes some very weird decisions and we're gonna to get to some more of them soon. Where he almost sort of like prankstery, like refuses to call jams by the name the dead deadheads like know them by. Um, but this is one where it's like I think pretty famously known as a caution jam because Phil starts playing the like sort of walking bass line that he plays in caution the song. But he doesn't really get to that until later in this jam section. And it it just sort of arbitrarily cuts off. It's almost like when Bob star- stops strumming the estimated chords uh, and then it gets a little more freer, it, it, it cuts into a separate jam. But, you know, for instance, you could have done that with the Dark Star on Volume 2. You could have put Dark Star into Feeling Groovy Jam into Dark Star and he didn't do it there. Right. So it's kind of strange that you would make this... Uh, designation in this version
2: yeah i i I tend to just in my mind i group them together which is what adds to my thought that this is maybe my favorite estimated profit you know like i feel like the jam is part of the estimated profit so they're all one entity it's not separate Hmm. Um, out of the jam one or estimated profit whatever you want to call it we go into he's gone. And I feel like you, you need to make a very special. Announcement right now, Rob. <laughs> yeah. You, you, it's, it's time for you to show some contrition here. right?
1: Yes, exactly. This is my uh, mea culpa. So the uh, second episode, we were talking about what songs or, or why, why the dead didn't play any sort of tribute or make any sort of banter tribute uh, to Greg Allman dying. Sorry, Dwayne Allman. There we go. I'm going to correct my error and make another error. Uh, To to Dwayne Allman dying a, a few days before that show. And I said... Well, they didn't have He's Gone yet. He's Gone was about Pigpen, of course, and He's Gone is the song they played whenever anybody died. Uh, He's Gone is not about Pigpen, at least not originally. It was written about Lenny Hart, Mickey's dad, who was their manager, but was a total slimeball and ran off with a bunch of their money, which led to Mickey quitting the band for a while. Uh, if you look, if you read the lyrics, it's very clearly about Lenny Hart running off with the dead's money, uh, though in true sort of weird dead fashion, pretty much did turn it into like their tribute song to dead friends as like time went on like they played one right after john lennon died like they played one people send us a bunch of versions of he's gone that they did for various like recent deaths uh so i was i guess sort of half right in that it eventually became like their their dead celebrity tribute song uh but yes originally it was about lenny hart i'm apologize on behalf of the podcast to deadheads everywhere for I'm screwing very... that up. Uh, the only thing I'll say is that we do like to throw in an error or a very dumb error late in episodes, just to make sure everybody's listening to the end. And that's sort of our like, uh, canary in a coal mine <laughs> not me man i no.
2: I, I, I never met mi- i've never made a mistake in this show you have a perfect absolutely record absolutely perfect <laughs> i'm very disappointed i'm very disappointed in this he's <laughs> season- gone mistake let's well, not, not let it happen again or right. uh you know i might have to bring in uh you know you might be keith and i gotta bring in a brent that's yeah. all i'm saying oh. you know, I, i'm gonna leave it at that all right i'll watch uh, my step just don't fuck it up Play with both your hands, man. Don't be giving
1: your wife the bird and play with one hand. My pet turtle. Um, that's, so that's the only one down here. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> this version of He's Gone, what I like about it is it comes in real hot, like an early 70s He's Gone. Like it's got a nice frisky tempo. And then it's like Jerry has a big dial labeled Grateful Dead tempo and he just cranks it down (laughs) to be this like really slow like regal 80s 90s he's gone tempo and I just find that like a really like symbolic uh, moment in this show where you can almost hear him like taking the 70s dead and like jerking back on the reins uh, for all but eyes of the world I guess Uh, but yeah really like slowing it down and exploring some of the like mellower tempo tempos that they will continue to exist in uh, for the next 15 years yeah
2: i i and i always like that progression for he's gone i like i like it when this song uh and we talked about this in in our dick's Picks volume one episode because that that has a he's gone that might be my favorite he's gone ever mm-hmm. where you know that song almost breaks down at the end it's so slow and so spare it feels like they're barely playing but they they they're still moving forward they're keeping it together and there is a similar uh vibe to this version as well that you alluded to that it slows way down and uh, to where you get to the vocal coda at the end where you know you you just have the vocals and hand claps basically you know at the end and i and i love that progression because it does feel like uh it doesn't feel like Lenny Hart left with their money. It does feel like a death song, you mm-hmm. know. It yeah. feels like a few. Fu- it feels very, uh, you know, like fu- funereal. Like at that point, point. and so I always like that for for he's gone. And I think it adds to uh, the vibe of this set, where just as you know, estimated profit ends up devolving into this, you know, kind of weird jam this song also devolves and then ends up going into the other one um which is a good study in contrast there because that's obviously a much more upbeat song uh after that it's interesting you know because obviously we just did uh dick's picks volume four which has a very famous other one so to have another other one you know in this next uh Uh, Disc. I mean, it. We are suffering a bit from from our own context of going through these in order because to me, this one couldn't help but suffer a little bit in comparison to that. (laughs) You know, like it's it's not quite as pile driving. You know, and like we we've already talked about how it's a little weird to go from seventy to seventy nine. I for me, that transition was maybe a little bit easier than it was for you. It wasn't as jarring for me. But this was one instance where I felt like ah, my memories of the Dix Picks Volume 4 other one are too fresh. Right. And I think this one's pretty good, but, like, you know,
1: it can't help but suffer in comparison. Well, it's, to it is we 22 heard. minutes shorter. <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty remarkable that you can even say that about any song. But, yeah, you know, obviously they're not doing the cryptical envelopment part. There's no drum segment in the middle. It's just that, like, full steam ahead middle section. And, you know, it's pretty good. And it's, like, Phil this isn't like a, a show where Phil jumped out at me a lot. And I was almost kind of thinking if maybe Brent was sort of occupying this area that Phil used to occupy with busier bass parts. And maybe it's just down to the recording to some extent as well. Uh, but here in the other one is where Phil gets to drop some famous Phil bombs all over it. And, you know, it it seems to go over well uh, with the crowd and is a good sort of pick-me-up after this after a a slow he's gone
2: so the next part of this set is another example of the dead moving into the 80s and implementing what are now well-established parts of grateful dead shows but at the time were relatively new and this is the drums space section of the show and it's not precisely built as that, because you have the drums part and then you have jam two, but jam two is essentially space uh mm-hmm. in, in this show. And with the drums part, I mean that really became sort of a formalized part of the show at this moment in time. Obviously there were other you know, drum solos going on in previous dead shows. We talked earlier, you, know, you were just talking about the other one uh from Dick's Picks Volume 4 where drums were essentially part of the other one. you know, It wasn't built as like a separate thing. It was part of the other one. You know, and we and we talked, too, about how the Dark Star had a section that was basically space, but it wasn't built as space or it wasn't broken out. It was just considered to be right. part of a Dark Star jam. Um, but for this drums, it marks a new era for for Mickey and Bill because they were starting to bring in the army of drums or like the, the large (laughs) amount of drums that they, that they become famous for in the eighties. And it was an extension of their work doing the soundtrack for Apocalypse Now uh, as the rhythm devils. It was, it was Mickey and Bill and there were some other percussionists as well. Whose names escape me at the moment. Um, It's interesting too. Like there's this great book that Eleanor Coppola wrote, the wife of Francis Coppola. It's called notes. And it's about the making of Apocalypse Now from her perspective. She, of course, ended up making a documentary about a decade and a half later called uh, Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, which is one of the great documentaries yeah. ever made about Re- the making of a film. Um, yeah, really good. Really good. But um, this book that she wrote, it's a diary of the making of the film and it's also a diary of like a very bad patch in the marriage between Francis Coppola and Eleanor Coppola like Francis like ended up cheating on his wife during the making of that movie and he almost left her for this woman so Eleanor Coppola is writing about that and writing about the making of the film and how it's turning her family upside down because Francis Coppola is driving the family into debt there's also an entry about them seeing the grateful dead in October of 1978 around the time that Brent was starting to enter the picture Uh, For the Grateful Dead. Um, But anyway, in early 79, Coppola ended up inviting uh, Bill Kreutzman and Mickey Hart uh, to basically just jam in a studio and come up with rhythm tracks um, that he used in uh, Apocalypse Now. It's interesting to me listening to this drums because, you know drum space can be very hit or miss for people. I, I'm sure there's people out there that would use this as their bathroom break opportunity to walk out. Um, I really loved this particular drums and it reminded me of apocalypse. Now it has a very tribal feel to it and it it feels foreboding. Um, and it, it, it actually flowed really well and it had a narrative to it to me, for me. Um, and i th- and i think just the way it works with the jam too which which is the space section um i thought this was like one of the best parts of the set i really liked it a lot th- how'd you yeah. would you feel about it
1: yeah i think like drum space i've always kind of given the benefit of the doubt to because i feel like it's something that works a lot better in the room than it does on a tape and that'll be true for the entire 80s and 90s Uh, But this one is, it's really good. And I think you're right that it is is very still much rooted in the music they did for Apocalypse Now. They're using the Beast, which is their big rack of bass drums that they built for the Apocalypse Now sessions. And you get that after the sort of uh, more bongo-y section at the start, you get this big part where you can hear them move over to the big bass drums and the crowd just like flips out. And I'm sure this sounded incredible in 1979 like you never saw anything like this these two guys just going crazy in like a big rumpus room of drums (laughs) that they had at the back of the stage that would just get bigger and bigger and bigger over the next 15 years uh it's 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 cool and it also like i appreciate that it gives dick like a really obvious place to do a disc flip (laughs) going forward like you can have drums one and drums two because like nobody's really going to care if you fade Out in the middle of drums and fade back in For the next disc Uh, But the space part is what really Like got me excited Because it kind of picks up where the estimated Profit jam Left off Where you're you're getting not just these crazy Brent synth tones But also The you know Bob and Jerry and Phil Really going wild on whatever weird pedals They had at the time uh, it it feels a little like Sea Stone Z at times because Phil's doing those long bass drones that he would do with Sea Stones, while Brent's exploring some very guitar-like sounds <laughs> that I think actually kind of work in this context because it's just sort of free jazzy and out there and cosmic and he's not doing a guitar sound over dire wolf or something he's doing it over some pretty exploratory bass uh and and i like it and i feel like six minutes is exactly the right amount of space for me to handle but i know it's just gonna get longer as the years go on but you know like a 10 minute or so drums and a six minute space It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's a good sort of dose of strange, cosmic, avant-garde dead in the middle of this set.
2: I think it's strong, and I, I again I have to give a shout out to 122879 because there's a drum space in that second set, which the drums and space happen at the same time. Like there's not a separate drum solo or, or a space section; they're happening simultaneously. And I think it's about 13 minutes or so, and that is awesome. Like I, I, it's really strong in that show, and whatever I think. I tend to think that what they were doing in this show sets up what they do a couple shows later. So mm-hmm. not to not to keep jumping to, to 1228, but I think that's a really strong show. And I really like that drum space uh, from yeah. that show. Uh, what's, what's interesting with the next two songs. So, so we have Not Fade Away and Broke Down Palace. Yeah. Broke Down Palace is a bust out. Again, not since October 77. Another you know vocal centric song from American beauty, you know a song that benefits from you know having great harmony vocals I feel like normally when you come out of space that's a that's a that's a spot that's reserved for like Stella blue or or morning dew, one of these kind of interstellar songs that are that that build to like grand climaxes with you know with the Jerry Garcia guitar solo. Broke Down Palace isn't exactly that. It's cool to hear it uh, as a bust out. I don't know if it totally works in this spot. As much as I love that song, I, w- I was kind of wanting something a little more dramatic in that spot. Uh, right. It's weird to me too. Well, that the Not fade, fade Away comes.
1: Away. Not Fade Away comes first before the Broke Down Palace. Well, that's what so I mean. I was to just
2: gonna. I was just gonna say that. You know I feel like normally they would do the ballad coming out of yeah. space and then and then do the rocker where here they did the rocker way, yeah. and then they did the ballad i guess because not fade away has that more tribal beginning and maybe it felt like a natural segue to come out of space into this you know the bow Diddley beat of of, mm-hmm. of not fade away i thought the not fade away w- w- was strong i really liked it yeah um, it's another
1: one that is kind of Well, it's a lot different from the one on Dix Picks 4 (laughs) and the one on Dix Picks 2. So, we've heard like a couple versions of very torrid Not Fades Away where Jerry is just kind of, you know, doing this euphoric run of guitar throughout the entirety of the song. And this one has, it's a lot different. It has a really slinky buildup. It's got, some interesting fill parts going on. you got a lot of Brent organ that's like hovering around and playing off of the other ones and Jerry, you know through this whole show he's got this very fast paced sort of fluttery sound that he keeps doing it's almost like a finger picking, but it's electric uh and it that really turns up a lot here. but when it settles down about halfway through the not fade away, I think it is there's a there's a stretch where he hits on like a a more like a calmer melody he slows down and it really starts to sound like the 70s versions again it's kind of got like a james gang feel i thought too or like yeah. an almondsy feel it's got that sort of chuggly, slidey blues rock feel going on uh so it eventually gets around to a real like a, a real nice spot i think it's sort of the last part of the show that really grabs me to be honest uh yeah the I, brookdown palace is nice but it's it feels like the show's really winding down and of course then we get back to uh the triple berry the second and third parts of the triple berry yeah i mean you know and again like the brookdown
2: palace i think that's like an interesting choice and i feel like maybe that was one of the reasons why dick went with this show because there were some bust outs in this show compared to say like the 1228 show which has a lot of songs that had just appeared on other Dix picks releases including like a really long again like sugary and, and you know and some of the um songs in the second set appeared on other Dix picks volumes so i wonder if maybe just the uniqueness of this set was part of the appeal because i think on paper it's interesting that they played broke down palace here but again i would say that to have like a Stella blue or a morning dew or like one of those more kind of dramatic ballads that build that that are more dynamic, I think it would have been more effective there uh but yeah, like going into the into the doubleberry at the end here um <laughs> okay i and I just have to say look and i've I've made this complaint before i'm gonna i'm gonna double down on it like around and round, I don't like this cover, I don't like. I mean this is, this they're playing it way slower than the Chuck Berry version. The Rolling Stones also covered this song on like one of their early 60s right. records and they they sped it up and I love their cover. Yeah and you know it's in the
1: tammy show right
2: yeah it's great it it rocks it sounds awesome and like this dead version it's so slow and it's kind of smarmy to me i just don't i just don't dig it (laughs) and this is definitely my bathroom break song this is like as soon as i the joint was rocking i'm like handing my beer to you and i'm like dude (laughs) i'm taking a piss i'm getting out of here you've been Um, holding
1: it this whole time that's impressive yeah. I've been to shows with you, Steve. You can't well, you can't hold it that long.
2: Well, you know, I this is a great second set. I don't wanna leave. I don't wanna leave. I you know, <laughs> I, I I was pissing in a cup, you know, under my shirt, <laughs> so I wouldn't have to leave. But now I'm actually yeah. gonna or if I'm not if I'm not gonna take a piss, I'm gonna go get one more beer before they're shutting down the the beer yeah, stands. Because you, um, you know I was thinking about this too. Like the Rolling Stones were were still covering a lot of Chuck Berry songs live around this time. Like I think like in the late seventies they were doing like "Let It Rock," and uh, I know they were doing like "Bye Bye Johnny." I mean they were playing like more interesting Chuck Berry covers too, like songs that weren't mm-hmm. like the most obvious ones. And the Stones covering Chuck Berry, awesome. Keith Richards, obviously. You know, you know, arguably Chuck Berry's greatest acolyte, you know, greatest uh, student. Uh, you know, I, I could hear him play Chuck Berry covers all day, but around and round, it's just kind of lame. So I'm walking out during that, but I'll come back for Johnny Be Good. It's a little more upbeat, and I I can get into that as like a side closer. So not my favorite like way to end like a set, but
1: definitely more tolerable than a round and round. It's kind of funny that, like, we talked earlier about The Dead being almost an oldies act at this point in 1979. Uh, Playing, you know, the same venue as a bunch of these new wave bands and kind of sticking out as a 60s leftover. And it's funny that they not only double but triple down on playing the even older material. So they're like an oldies act playing the oldies in the midst of a very, you know rapidly modernizing rock scenes. So this is kind of where I can see a lot of, you know, late 70s punks. Though, you know, I mean, it's like punk in a way was circling back to Chuck Berry, so maybe they liked it. But yeah, it's kind of like a it's a little bloated compared to the, the very stripped down early rock Chuck Berry stuff. And the Stones were always a lot better at keeping it stripped down and not adding a whole layer of bloat on top that sort of, you know, runs counter-purpose to the song itself. I will say
2: that, like, I think this is an example of, you know, if we were in the room, this might have worked better. Like, I think, like... Yeah. To, to play, you know, because especially for the people of this time, I'm sure, you know, like, Chuck Berry was the music of their youth, I'm sure. You know, this that might have been, like, the first rock records that they ever heard, like, people of that generation. So... The nostalgia value of, of of hearing that would have been really exciting if you're in the room. You know, it's hard not to jump to your feet if a band is playing Johnny Be Good. So I can I can totally understand, you know, in terms of pleasing an audience in 1979. You know that that would have really worked, but you know, revisiting it 40 years later, yeah, I don't need to hear it. I can I can skip it. So that's how I feel about that at the end of the second set. Going into the encore, however, one song I will not ever walk out of Shakedown right. Street, and it's you know we were you know we recently did Dix Picks Volume Three, uh, you know from the Hollywood Sportatorium in Florida, and we talked about the sleaze of that era, you know the discoey dead, right? You know the sweat and the grime that you feel like you can feel when you listen to the, to, to DP three. Um, this shakedown street is interesting because to me it's not as sleazy i think it goes back to that 80s idea of them sounding a little bit more professional maybe on this version um and 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 again this song having more of like a crowd-pleasing air to it and again just having like a, it, it just feels like a very professional version of it and i and i say that not in a disparaging way because i loved hearing it um on this record but um it feels like an 80s precursor and even like a dead you know because i feel like dead and co still plays this song a lot i think it's a song that like people of of that era of of fandom you know if you got into the dead at this time like this would be like one of the go-to songs like to get the crowd moving
1: yeah i always liked how they sort of boiled down that 77 coke disco dead energy into one song, <laughs> like shakedown street didn 't exist in may seventy seven but it 's like they bottled what that what they were doing in that direction in may seventy seven and just made it like a song that they could play all the time when they wanted to get that feeling and I think you know going forward there's going to be some pretty good shakedowns in the brent era i believe i I always have thought of that as a song that really bloomed under brent's. Uh, rather than sort of petering out. But yeah, this version, it's okay. I I think it's a really fun encore, especially because they would play, you know, typically pretty short encores, Uh, but I guess they had burned all their Chuck Berry covers, so they had to play something else. And it wasn't Saturday night, so they couldn't play that. Uh, But it's kind of nice to get one sort of extended jam, like a bonus jam at the end of this show. It's very much in that zone that i was talking about earlier where i feel like with brents going all out alongside bob and jerry there's just it feels very full and very busy and dense in a way that isn't totally appealing to me and it seems like they all have some form of like wah pedal effect on at the same time so just like a three-way wah battle going on for a few minutes at the end of this shakedown uh but you know it's okay it's fun and the segue into uncle john's band like a reprise of uncle john's band i think is an inadvisable segue in a lot of (laughs) ways and it's very and it's really rough uh but i kind of respect the high degree of difficulty segue and just like the gall it took to actually try and steer Shakedown into Uncle John's band. I mean, these are two dead songs that couldn't be further apart uh, in terms of tone and sound and Jerry's like just kind of grabs the whole band by the scruff of the neck and says no we're doing uncle john's band again (laughs) we're all going back uh for one last verse and i i like it as like a novelty more than like a fine piece of music but it's another reason why maybe this show appealed to dick which it's like that's that's not something you're gonna hear again
2: yeah and I think you know and it works for me as a bookend to the beginning of the second set and I feel like in the room they probably appreciated the callback to this beloved song that they hadn't played for a long time sure I'm sure yeah. like if you, like if, like if you were excited to hear uncle John's band the first time it must have been like a pretty holy shit moment to be like oh fuck they're playing it again yeah oh dude this is <laughs> great you know like just this feel good <laughs> song that you can walk out feeling happy um so but yeah like the trend, like, but like the segue into it is like so like, awkward and somewhat train wrecky right but they pull but they pull it together like pretty quick yeah after they do that and yeah. uh and so tip of the cap there uh very hard thing to pull off but still i think a satisfying end to this show yeah uh so so yeah so this is the this was the first fall show again i really like this show overall i think it's a really entertaining show um you know <laughs> normally in these sh- episodes we complain about songs that were cut uh that we like um but in this episode we have to talk about maybe songs that we weren't crazy about that they ended up putting in you know I I appreciate that this is a complete show, so I'd have to say that I really wouldn't want anything cut, even though there's certain moments that I'm not crazy about. I mean, if I had to pick something to cut, I guess I would say the two Chuck Berry songs at the end of the second set could go for me. In a way, even Broke Down Palace could go for me, even though it's a bust out. Um, But I feel like you could cut those three songs and then move the encore up um and it would be fine although i guess it wouldn't really work though because not fade away segues into broke down palace so maybe you have to leave it in for that reason definitely cut the two chuck berry songs though i'm sorry round and round that's on that's on so many dicks picks man we don't need that again
1: right i wonder if like out
2: of there for sure
1: i would definitely say i'm happy it's there and my stance is that you should release full shows whenever possible uh but I I wonder how this set, how people, whether this set would be more beloved if you just cut the first set out entirely. And I'll make it very clear. I like a lot of the stuff in the first set. Uh, and I like, I always like how the first set sort of tees up the deeper, weirder stuff that's going to happen in the second set. But if this was just kind of like the Dix Picks Volume 2, where it's just the second set, it's just the meat of the show, just two discs. The entire, because the second set is pretty much all chained together with segues, so it's it's really hard to cut around it. Uh, I wonder if people would, like, think more highly of this volume than they do, because it's not a volume you hear a lot of people talk about very often. And a little bit of that, I think, is, you know, bias against State Dead. But it's also sort of the first of this early run of Dick's Picks that isn't, I think, universally treasured by Deadheads. You know... My argument would be, they should have put out twelve twenty eight. Man, <laughs> they should
2: have put that one out. I I I think that would have been, uh, I think that would have been better regarded. You know, again, it starts off with a great, epic sugary, like uh, just a great version of it. And I think the second set is more interesting ultimately than than what yeah. this is. I think you know, you could have put that out as is and, and i i think it would have been better regarded than this show but i don't know i like the first set and 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 i think the idea that you know that they were finally putting out a complete show um it showed a level of faith in deadheads to support something like that and uh so i, I i'm glad they did that and you know i'll be curious to see what the reaction is to this episode. You know, in, if uh you know maybe there are more supporters of of Dick's Picks 5 than than we know i know steve silberman has talked it up and uh mm-hmm. he, he's a pretty And he wrote the Dick. liner notes for the uh, yeah for the so, release too so um so and and i would say too that like if you are one of those people that only listens you know up to like 77 78 this is a good toe in the water for the brent era you know where mm-hmm. it's not as uh you know it's not as ex- it's not as extreme in its brentness as like the late 80s you know there's enough of the 70s in this where i think you would feel comfortable in this era and hopefully that'll draw you in deeper into the brent you know once you get into dick picks volume 5 because that's going to come in handy because looking ahead to our next episode dick picks volume 6 we are well into the 80s at that point that show <sighs> yeah. is from uh October 14th, 1983 at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut. Ah. And um, I think it's safe to say that this was the first Dix Picks that was truly confounding for some people, like how this show <laughs> got picked. You know, I think you know there's some, there, there were maybe some people that weren't into Brent, but we're not sure about five. But I think five is still like a pretty solid all around show. Six, however, is a little bit wacky as a choice yeah. and i kind of love it for that reason but um yeah it, it, it's questionable in parts like why this show of all shows got got picked uh for this uh, i'm just looking at the at, at the uh um yeah <laughs> i was looking at the track list there is a keep your day job
1: yes finally (laughs) we'll get a chance Uh, to discuss the dead classics
2: and dick's pick six but there's also you know there's there's a scarlet fire there's another estimated profit there's there's a you know about 18 minute eyes of the world Mm -hmm. uh you know so the there's there's some good stuff there too um so yeah it's gonna be an adventure i'm excited to get into dick's pick six yeah like you
1: said i'm I'm glad that volume five is here as a stepping stone to that because I have jumped ahead a little bit and was like, wow, this is, this is a lot. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I maintain as I did at the top of the episode that I'm going to keep an open mind and try to, uh, appreciate Brent's in all of his, in all of his qualities and all of his demons. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes next time.
2: All right. Well, it's always a pleasure, Rob, exploring the dead with
1: you and, uh, good listening to the dead and uh yeah looking forward to next time thanks everybody for listening and for tweeting at us and keeping it mostly civil on the social media and yeah you know all the usual stuff tell a friend if you have a deadhead that hasn't listened to us yet let them know that we have some takes that might anger them but for the most part it's just it's just people talking the dead man it's right we're just we're just we're just chilling out sometimes we like things out more than others it's 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 what happens what deadheads do
2: and either way we're keeping our day job so no worries there
1: <laughs> that's true yeah
2: all right see you later everybody 36 from the Bald is hosted by me, Stephen Hayden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brickman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Ammar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Bald is RJB.
3: Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week.
0: So triangulate your speakers.
2: Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Extra Grand Podcast.
3: Hey, you. Do
1: you have any plans this year?
0: 020-D.com SoundTalentMedia.com or on your favorite podcast app.